out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, producer, composer and bass player. It is the one and only Lee Gorman, who was in and still is in Bow Wow Wow. Um, Had a very short period of time with Adam and the Ants, but has uh, done lots of production work and worked with lots of amazing people. So this is the interview. Um, So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Lee, it's over to you. Yes, well, several, actually. Uh, When I was very young, uh, in the the early to mid-60s, I was, you know, a toddler on the on the floor in the lounge, and there'd be the Rolling Stones and the Beatles on the black and white TV. And um, my sister, who was older than me, she actually went to see them. And my aunt and all that, and my cousins, it was a thing. It was definitely an energy and uh, a phenomenon that I could sense even at that young age. You know, swinging London. Um, the TV shows, Top of the Pops, Ready, Steady, Go, maybe a bit before your time, maybe. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was what got me first going. And then, of course, like most teenagers, as I got older, became a teenager, I was into, you know, just like you mentioned, David Bowie, T-Rex. Um, and I was interested in, in them because as a group of friends, you know, we were all hanging out and, listen to them on our little cassette players and stuff like that. It was good. I, I loved David Bowie and, and, and T-Rex. And the, and then um, that's kind of how I started because the tour manager for T-Rex lived near us. And we formed like a, a band. You know, someone had an electric guitar. I think I was 13. And we plugged it into the hi-fi. And they said, you know, why don't you, because I could play the James Bond theme. That was my claim to fame in the local area where I lived in Hackney. And uh, so I said, well, get Lee over. You know, he might be able to play it. So I thrashed around on it. And um, I was fascinated by it. So that moment of grabbing a guitar that could make that noise, and it was all loud and distorted and trying to sound like the people you see on the TV was something. And that guy that had that house, he bumped into T-Rex's uh, tour manager. And he says, oh, yeah, I've got a band. I said, really? He says, well, have you got any gear? He says, well, not really. So the, the tour manager of T-Rex said, why don't you come round and borrow Mark's gear? Can you believe that? It's true. I'm not making it up. So we go round there and we borrow loads of uh, prams, you know, little old prams that our relatives have lent us. And we grab, you know, he gives us, all the spare gear of Mark's, not his like real stuff, but all the spare stuff, like a spare Telecaster. Because I was the littlest and youngest, I was given the bass. I didn't really know what a bass was. It was this big thing with thick strings. I'm like, wow, the strings are thick. I've never seen one like this before. And we all, we all set it up in my mum and dad's lounge and they were out. And we had a drum kit, bass amp, guitar, and... um. I suppose I know maybe a different thing you're talking about a uh, musical epiphany as, as a listener. I was going through a continual yeah. <laughs> epiphany as a teenager, like we all were back then. Um, and suddenly, you know, one of these idols was letting us use his band's gear, and of course we couldn't really play. We're just making an awful racket 
and the neighbours are complaining. And we, you know, we spent about an half an hour making a noise, and then we had to pack it all down again. But that was it. I was hooked. Well, I'm not you know, surprised. This... That is yeah. extraordinary because Mark Boland. I mean, in the '60s, he was a bit of a um, a folky poetry chap who was on the John Peel Perfume Garden, wasn't he? Right, you know, doing these amazing songs about wizards and demons and sort of unicorns. This, this was a this this was early. This must have been seventy three, seventy four. So this that is when he he was that. kind of like basically he was the biggest artist alongside Slade in in yeah. the UK, wasn't he? So. And there yeah. he was with, with Elton John on keyboards banging out bang a gong. <laughs> of course. And then we discovered it's not as easy as that. You can't just pick things up and start making. Yes. And then um, you know, but I was hooked. And I could all, I was already doing guitar lessons and all that stuff. And uh, but that's how I started. And the other guys kind of just faded away. And I joined a band of other kids that knocked on my door and said, Oh, we hear you can play bass. I said, well, I'm, I'm trying, you know. <laughs> and these two kids were younger than me. They were they were like 12 and 13, but they were brilliant. You know, the drummer was a brilliant drummer. The guitar player could play, you know, Richie Blackmore solos at 13. And wow. That is I know. They were that... two, and I joined their band as a plonk, you know, one, two, three, four bass player. Yes, absolutely. That was, that was my first band. And the other guys that, you know, were thrashing around with Mark Boland's gear, they sort of ended up kind of giving it up. It, it yeah. wasn't their thing. But for Amazing. some reason, I I kind of picked it up. But that that was a, that was the the thing that got me going and thought this could be real. You know, if Mark Bowden lives around the corner, well, we didn't live, but if his tour manager lived around the corner, and all these, it, it became close and it seemed attainable. It wasn't just something remote on the TV that you kind of seemed unattainable. If that makes any sense, yes. it seemed more seemed closer in terms of proximity and attainability to me at that young age. I think, well, well, I could do this. You know, these are just ordinary guys and, you know, let's have a go. Absolutely. And then I met these, then I met these other two guys that were from another estate uh, just down the road from me. And for some reason, they just heard about me, God knows how, and knocked on my door like a week or two later. And then I went out and bought my own base from Woolworths <laughs> and my own little amp from Woolworths. My dad uh, helped me give me some of the money, and and I joined their little band. And the guy, yes. the guitar player, taught me how to play. You know, and we were doing, we weren't doing glam rock. We were doing. He was. They were more into heavy. You know, um, uh, deep purple. We were doing deep purple covers, and uh, you know, smoke on the water. Classic. Uh, Strange kind wrong. of woman. There was strange kind of woman, wasn't there? Fireball. Yeah. Burn. Fire. A bunch of, and then a few songs that they'd written. You know, songs called like H bomb and things like that. You know, <laughs> that, that teenagers write. And I was just very rudimentary, counting every note. Just you know, just I was the junior member. The other two guys were, you know, brilliant compared to me. So but you then came... I caught up. Yes, well, absolutely. Did you? So your parents were obviously quite hip to the trip of the sixties, because I must admit my parents were slightly into sort of. They'd gone from sort of slightly into things like Elvis. Then they got married, so they were quite 
just kind of trying to hustle a bit of money together. This was kind of the countries, you know, working class countryside people. And then, you right. know, it was like country and Western. So I didn't really have that much kind of musical kind of, wow, that's amazing, Dad. You know, Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie wasn't really going to float my boat. My bro- I had an older <laughs> brother who was seven years older and he was into prog rock of, you know, Sweden's um, Yes and Genesis. And then he actually had right. Deep Purple and um, Black Sabbath albums, which I thought were amazing. But he did he did introduce me to prog rock. So your parents were obviously, you came from a much more musical and happening household, well, didn't you? I, I say that, but it was mainly my peers, my friends, you know, like I said, that we were hanging out listening to music on our little cassette players and stuff and going into each other's houses and putting them, you know, the way teenagers do, you put the records on, you all sit around listening. And um, my dad didn't like it that much, but he, he supported me. You know, he helped me get my first bass. And um, and uh, I was doing guitar lessons at school, so he helped get me my first classical guitar. And um, But he wasn't into, he liked jazz. He liked Errol Gardner, Oscar Peterson. Right. And um, he liked jazz and he would watch that and have that going. But we were, you know, the EastEnders, I don't know if you know, it's it's kind of, we were classic EastEnders. At Christmas, we would have a big party that went on till 9, 10 in the morning, you know, when I was a little kid. And we'd just play records. And my sister was seven years older than me, so she had all the pop records. So she would be playing, she had a huge pile of uh, 45s. So I was like DJ and she was DJ. So that's that's how we were a musical family. Yeah. Um, we hip, had a lot of, sort of family system. parties. There's a yeah. lot of joie de vivre. Yeah, she was pretty hip. Yeah, she like I say, she went to see the Beatles and um when she was pretty young with my aunt. And um yeah, me and my dad helped put he went to Carnaby Street and just bought loads of posters and did this kind of artwork. Of, of a collage of posters all over a room you know i, I had good parents you know oh, we were working was... class we we had not a lot of money but we, uh, but i didn't kind of realize that then you know you don't when you're a kid <laughs> I, I was looked after we weren't rich but we we were well fed well clothed i yes. never wanted for anything and then <laughs> really? you know as i grew up i realized that's because my dad had two jobs and my mum had two jobs and um you yeah. know i, I I was lucky and going through life, you realized that um other people weren't so lucky. Yes. You know, was was it one of was it one of those parents who never borrowed money? Because my parents, they never borrowed money. They just would they would work, work, yeah. work, save money, buy Take what they up. wanted. And then they like, would... maybe the odd thing, maybe like a on HP, you know, just one thing, like like a sofa or something, or that was it. But most things were just put the money away. And uh, we had things called club, you know, a guy would come round and you'd give him like a pound or two pound a week. And he'd put it in this little, this big, thick book with tiny little writing in it. And he was a big, fat guy. He'd come round once a week and my mum would give him two two pounds. Oh, is that the kind of Christmas book that they used to have? Exactly. Yeah. And and you'd you'd get a hundred pounds. Yeah, Yeah, because you'd have two pounds a week. And then that hundred pounds was an enormous amount of money. And that, that money, that was how they did it. It was always a way. To uh, and you know, my dad just saved up money and worked like a ninja. Yes, you know, he, he worked all night um, on the print, d- uh, doing um, you know, bundling up newspapers and putting them in the back of trucks. Got gotcha. you know, yes. 
and my mum worked as a waitress and stuff like that. Oh, and because um, they grew up in the war and uh, they, their education was limited. So anyway, so yeah. that, that was. But but in the East End, and my family wasn't really that unique. Was that um, people had a lot of parties at Christmas, especially at Christmas and birthdays, New Year, down the pub, people singing on the mic, people coming home playing records, dancing. You know, it was a, it, it, happy people. You know, a lot yes. of the time. So, so that you- was the, that was the musical thing. That was your musical upbringing, which was good, because I came from, you know, like I said, East Anglia. We, you know, music, culture doesn't really kind of creep up into the countryside that quickly. So there right. was mostly kind of status quo, really, the band, you know, the the quo were the big band of the area. And you right. had to, you, right. you mustn't diss the quo because you'd have got beaten up quite <laughs> by, like by, by, by kids fun. with um, 150 motorbikes or 250s if they're really hard. So that um, was that the was, second... Sorry to interrupt. That was the second riff I ever learned. First was the James Bond thing, the basic part, and then Caroline. (laughs) Well, I grew to love them. You know, initially I was like, I wasn't so in love with them because I thought, this isn't very I don't know. I love David Bowie. So look, when you, so what was your first gig you ever went to then? Because you obviously, you're in this kind of place where you've just got choice, haven't you? And you've got, you know, probably just a a bus, a bus away to some amazing gig. What was your first gig? Um, Well, first big gig was Slade. Uh, I did one, the Melody Maker or NME, one of those papers, Pole Award. It was a big, big gig at uh, Wembley Empire Pool. You know that big venue. Yeah. I don't think it's still probably not there anymore. And uh, I suppose I must have been about that age, thirteen, fourteen. And I went with you know a big bunch of friends from my area, and um, we were all Slade fans. Slade, uh, Bowie, of course. Uh, and T-Rex, as I mentioned, and Sweet, you know, all, all those classic things. And then, you know, Roxy Music, and then um, and then also, you know, a bit, a little bit later on, the more heavier stuff. Um, yes. But anyway, so I went to see Slade, and that was a really big, big show. It was thousands and thousands of people, and it was at Christmas, so, and it was uh, – and I remember Jimmy Lee, the bass player, getting up on a big box and doing a bass solo. You couldn't really hear him that well, but, you know, it seemed like, oh, okay, he's playing bass too and he's doing a solo. Oh, that's weird. Yes. Know? And then years later, you come So that was Chris my first Squire. big show. That's right. I mean, yeah, it wasn't quite like that, bless his heart. <laughs> but anyway, and I saw them years later. And uh, in the same venue, I saw, I saw, yes, I don't know, five years later. Right. When I was about that- 17. Almost the height of their prog rockness. So, were your was your first band that you you sort of formed or, or joined? Was that called Fifty Seven Men? Which was um... no, that was that was later. That was right, a few years later. Uh, the first band was called Lazy. You know, because after the Deep Purple track, right? Of course. Yeah, not not a very imaginative name, but you know, we were kids. We were thirteen and fourteen years old, and. Uh, Mostly 13, you know, we were about 13. And um, we used to rehearse in the church hall. And I remember we used to give the vicar 10p for the heating and the lights. So it only cost us 10p. And we and it 
wasn't too loud for the neighbours. It was sort of a little function ball. It wasn't very yes. big. It was enough, and we'd rehearse two or three times a week. You know, pretty dedicated. That's amazing. I did an interview with that guy. For, was it the... Oh, a second. I'm busy right now. Okay. <laughs> right, sorry. That's all right. So then when you hit 16, did you leave school at this age? Did you leave, was it 16 no. and you were out? No, I, I stayed on. I, I went to do my A-levels and all that stuff. And I was going to go to college. And, and um, yeah, I was good at school. I'd started to drop my grades because, um, you know, I got into music and had girlfriends and all the rest of it. But but I was I was a bit of a swat, you know, up until the age of 13, 14, before I started doing all that stuff. So I got into a grammar school, and um, I liked it. I liked uh, academic subjects. I liked physics and and science and mathematics, and and um, I liked all subjects, English. And I was, you know, re- pretty decent at most of them. But the the homework was three, four hours a night. You know, you're 11 years old and you come home with a briefcase full of paper. You know, my parents didn't understand that. And uh, it would I would pull all nighters. I was eleven years old pulling all nighters to to finish all my homework assignments, and you know, and I kind of let it go a bit when I was fourteen because it was just too much. You know? Yes, I was I was doing really well. You know, I was coming top of the class and this and that and the other. But it was it was my first experience of you know stressful work coming from a primary school in the East End, which is. Pretty easy going, beautiful little school, you know, nice friends, nothing too rough, a little bit rough and tumble. But, you know, a bunch of nice teachers and schools, I had, I had a good experience. And then into a, like a hardcore academic uh, environment, uh, which it was a bit like Hogwarts. You know, it was like a, a it's called Central Foundation right in the middle of the city. Right. Well, not in the middle, on the edge of the city, you know, uh, the financial area. And... Um, you know, had all wood panelling and the teachers would come in with the mortarboards in the morning. They'd take them off just in the morning. The headmaster, you know, we'd do the big thing with a cape and the, and it was a, a hall of a big, uh, you know, uh, coat of arms and stuff. And, and it had been there a hundred, just over a hundred years. My God, that's was quite intimidating, with, isn't it, really? It was, but I kind of took it in my stride. Uh, I don't know. I, I was just kind of easy going about Alf. I was kind of surprised I got in, you know, because you have to take a test, you know, the 11 plus and all that. Yes. You do an interview. And, um, yeah, I, I liked it, though. All the kids were nice, you know, they were all really smart, and it was it was very competitive. So, no, I, I, I went to that kind of school, got a bunch of O-levels, then I stayed on to do A-levels and... Uh, physics, biology, maths, additional maths, electronics, um, and uh, uh, I didn't do music. Because, and then I did music on the side. They let me do the music on the side. It was kind of an OA level grade. Yes. It was very, like, the music teacher was friends with Benjamin Britten. Blimey. And, um, yeah, it was all very snooty. And all the, all the kind of more, it was a mixture the school was set up as a mixture between uh, Jewish, Gentiles, uh, people of a lower economic back, socioeconomic background, and people of a higher. So it was a, a social experiment set up in 1867, um, which was mainly successful. So there was a lot of Jewish kids at school, 
which was fun because they were always smart and funny. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it would it, it killed any sense of any anti-Semitism that, that I never had anyway. But, you know, they, they were all great kids yes. and, um, and smart and hardworking. And, uh, and I was in the class, which was mainly working class and Jewish kids. Then there was kind of a middle class, which was uh, a mixture of, and then there was like one class, which is all pretty much middle class and upper middle class kids. So we had very posh kids and very cockney kids mixed in the whole school. But generally we got along. There was no, uh, there was no class struggle, as it were. It was no. one or two, you know. But if you put your hand up and answer the question and got it right, some of the snooty kids were, how did he near that? You know, that kind of thing. But that that was only happened once in seven years. Yes. I would imagine that then that school, probably a lot of those people went on to be very successful in the 80s in the in the financial world and the political world and management. And were they most did you go, my God, they're the yuppies who created this great economic boom in Thatcher's Britain. Well, I Maybe, yeah, because we were right, we were very close to the economic centre. I mean, we did field trips to the Stock Exchange and Bank of England and all that stuff on a regular, you know, a few That's times. That's fantastic, yes. I just up the road. And I did an O-level in commerce, which, you know, so I don't know if that works. I just did it because it was another filler O-level. It was easy. And, um, you know, you learn about all that stuff and stocks and shares and all the, all the kind of thing. And a lot of kids... Um, not necessarily from my school, but a lot of kids I, I knew later on went on to into that financial world yes. where there was a demand for, you know, barrow boy kind of guys that are a bit smart and are called, probably cause more trouble and, you know, economic problems. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm kidding. But, yes. you know, well, it was, um, uh, yeah, it's, a lot of kids were very successful. Um, Martin... Uh, the bass player from Spandau, he was in the year below me, and um, and Gary Kemp, Martin Kemp, he was he was uh, in the year below me, and uh, a lot of kids in his year did very well. One like runs like one of the big clubs in Ibiza. Another kid that I hung out with, he ended up on News at Ten, News Reader, and now he runs his own um, uh, multimedia company. Um, Another guy is like head of mathematics at London University. You know, there was a lot of it imbued me and a lot of others with with a sense of uh, uh, confidence to mm. go out into the world. Yeah, for us working class kids, it can be intimidating. You know, absolutely. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. That, that, anyway, that's that. yes. So, <laughs> so then, fifty-eight men. This is does is this your next band when you're about sixteen, seventeen? Then. Yeah, 17, 18. Yeah, 17. was then um, me and Darren Costin, who was one of the kids that knocked on my door when he was 13, who was a brilliant drummer back then. Um, he, uh, Me and him sort of hung together. You know, the, the other guys went off to university in Lazy. We got back together. We had a manager. We, you know, we did all sorts of stuff. We did shows in the local youth club. And... and um, then we started rehearsing at a place in Bethnal Green near, near near to us. And it was like a rehearsal recording place. And we'd be hanging around there, you know, I'd be hanging around fixing jack plugs and, you know, just trying to work the studio and mixing and all that kind of stuff. And the owner wouldn't let us do too much. But we 
we rehearsed there and, and jammed there a lot. So there was a community of people and we'd all hang out there. It was fun. So me and him, me and Darren Costin, carried on playing when the others left to go to college. And um, next door to us was a band called The Intellectual, spelled with a K, which mm-hmm. was Nick and Jack from uh, Wang Chung, those guys. So they, they, their bass player and drummer left for some reason, and um, they, they heard us through the wall, me and Darren, playing. And they're like, you guys are pretty good. Do you, would you like to join our band? <laughs> you know, sorry to get back to the whole class thing, but, you know, Nick, Nick's dad is a lord. And Jack, these are very posh guys. I thought, well, you know, so what? They were very nice. They said, well, we, we heard you through the wall. You know, you sound really good. Do you, would you like to join our band? I'm like, oh, well, we'll give it a go, you know. Darren was a very larger-than-life character, and we we played really well together, and we hit it off. We had great fun, and then they got the singer Glenn Gregory. Yeah, I don't know how they found him. Yes, Glenn Gregory, and then we had a keyboard player called Simon, who was like some whiz electronics guy that worked for Marconi, and Glenn and Nick and Jack, and we formed that band, and we called it 57 Men. We couldn't think of a name. You know, someone came up with that down the pub. And we had a blast. We got on like a house on fire, all of us. Glenn is such a affable, um, nice person, you know, just there was never any rancor or little arguments. You know, even in our little team band, we'd had we had a little few arguments here and there, not much. Yeah. But we had a ball for about a year going around playing the marquee. Uh we went up to Sheffield to play the Limit Club because Glenn was from Sheffield. And, um, you know, and uh, that we had a wonderful time and we thought we were going to get a sign. We did a few demos and they, they were a bit limiting to me on the bass because they just wanted boom, 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 boom. And I, you know, I just wanted to go all over the place and show off. Uh, yes. Had you spotted and, John Entwistle by then? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I went to see The Who. I saw The Who at Charlton Athletic. Live, I was right at the front, and um, I watched John Entwistle like a hawk. I, I just was amazed because <laughs> he just stands there and just goes, you know, yes, with this powerful sound. It's very, you know, his dexterity and, and the power and, and rockiness, and uh, just it adds an extra element of uh, adrenaline to the music. That's not, you know, you don't hear it enough. Bit like uh, the bass player with, uh, you know, also not quite as dexterous and busy was uh, the bass player with Jimi Hendrix. What's his name? It's either Noel or Mitch. Mitch. Mitch is a drummer. I think. Right, anyway, so Noel Redding. I should know this. Noel Redding. There you go. Him. I, mean, I always way... get those two. I always get those two mixed up. I know, you know, I know the name. You know, I can't remember which one plays which. Mitch you know, but... Mitchell, or Mitch Mitchell. Anyway, but the 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 the, the way they. You know, worked around the guitar and the drums, and and uh, but watching the John Entwistle was incredible, and that's what I did. I used to go to gigs and just watch bass players. I should, I used to just stand there right in front of them, just try and figure out what the hell they were doing, and then go back and try it myself. You know, that was the kind of thing I was. I was. Did you ever see? Dedicated. Did you ever see Pete Thomas from? I think it was Thomas from Elvis Costello and the Attractions. I did. I did. Uh, he was a drummer. He was a great drummer. He had those big sort of long arms, and he he, he had that um, 
don't know if you're getting mixed up with a bass player. <laughs> I'm getting him mixed up with the bass player. Who's what's his name? What's he was good player? too. I can't remember his name, but he was great too. Yeah, I yes. saw him. I saw him at um, God, the I... big festival out in the country, Glastonbury. Yeah, I saw him at Glastonbury, the top of a hill. That was years later. That was '87, wasn't it? I can't remember. It, it, it might have been then. Yeah. My, no, it must have been later because my kid was about four or five and he was right. And he was with me covered in mud watching. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like watching. the 90s, actually. There you go. Yeah, probably the early 90s. But anyway. So, so 58 so, men, 57, 57 men, actually. Yeah, not me. Yeah, um, they, right. You broke up in the end. Well, we did a showcase, which must have been about a year, a year and a half. It was late 1979, and we did this uh, showcase at Dingwalls in Camden. And we kind of had a manager. His name was Jed Doherty, who went on to manage, and he was sort of manager agent. And he worked, really great guy as well, smart and intelligent. And he went on to manage huge artist later on. But he kind of corralled a bunch of uh, you know A&R guys and all that stuff and we'd done a demo people seemed to like it and um, so they came to Dingwalls on a Thursday night and it was relatively busy and um, we just didn't have a good gig it, we blew it you know we blew our <laughs> you know it just wasn't happening we didn't gel and um, our gigs were variable they were always fun but it was never like, you know, killer. And it was all their material, nothing wrong with their material, but but it wasn't quite my taste. But I I enjoyed the experience of being in the band and working with Darren and Nick and yes. everything. So yeah, I mean we we classically blew it. No one bit, no one was interested. And um it's funny because on the train home, I met the previous drummer who was the drummer with Atomic Rooster. Right. Heavy rock. And, yeah, and he was, he used to drink a lot and he had a can of cap special brew drink. Nice. Always a bad time. I can't remember if it was the time. No, it wasn't that night. It was like the day after or something. He's been, yeah, I heard about your gig at Dingles. You know, I just bumped into him on the train. He goes, I said, oh, yeah. He says, you fucking blew it, didn't you? You really <laughs> blew it. In a classic fashion, you blew it. I went, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and then Nick and Jack just called the next day and said, you know what? This isn't happening. You know, we we blew it. You know, the same phrase over and over. Yeah, we blew it. So we're, we're going to rethink the band. So, you know, we're just probably just going to break this thing up for now. So that was the end of that. And um, uh, so we all, Nick and Jack ended up keeping together. And then later on, Darren went off with them and formed Wang Chung. Yes. And then, um, I don't know, uh, then uh, then Glenn, he he had like a year or two, and I think he went back to uh, to Sheffield, and then he bumped into the, what's his face and formed, um, what was it, was Martin, it Martin Ware? Martin Ware yeah. to do Heaven. Yeah, and he formed Heaven 17, which were yeah. great, you know. And then I, about a month later, I got a phone call from Dave Barbarossa, who'd, and that gig at Dingwalls, uh, there was a guy there. We had a roadie. We had a roadie. His name was Rob Rob Lipfriend. 
And um, he knew uh, Knox Carnahan from the Vibrators. And uh, and Knox was friends with Adam N. Uh, <clears throat> Knox said to Rob, you know, Adam's looking for a bass band. And Rob says, oh, you know, this band just broke up. You should check this guy Lee out. You know, he's, he's really good. And so that's how they got my number. Through knocks yes. from vibrators and gave it to Adam. And then Adam asked Dave to call me. Mm-hmm. About three weeks later, it wasn't even that long, maybe two or three weeks later, I just got a phone call out of the blue. Said, Do you want to, you know, do an audition for Adam and the Ants? Well, okay, sure. So that was how that started. That was like November 79. That's so right. Because you. I got on a bus. I got on a bus and I just scrambled all my money together to get this wild bass. It cost me five hundred pounds. You know, and in a, in a flight case, it's a huge thing. I got on a two five three bus all the way from, you know, Hackney to Camden, and getting went to this office on top of a sweet shop in Camden Road <laughs> to do an audition with without a man. Yes, because this is because obviously the punk period of 76, 77 had, had been and slightly gone. So by then, you know, 78, yeah. 79, things had changed again. But then there was that sort of rather arty scene that Adam was in part of, wasn't he, with people from like Bid from the Monochrome set. And I mentioned Dorothy yeah. Max Pryor, who was also part of Throbbing Gristle and then a bit of very oh yes, this band called Rima Rima, who was kind of only for a year they they formed. But you right. Did you replace Andy Warren at this stage in Adam's band? I, I did. I, and he was a very nice guy. I mean, I didn't know anything. The only thing I knew about um, Adam and the Ants, I knew they existed and I'd seen their posters on the record shop next to the shop where I worked in in, in uh, Petticoat Lane. On Sundays, I used to work in a jean shop. And next door was a record shop. And I would go in there and buy my 45s. So I remember seeing a poster that, that, that stuck on the window. And it had all this S&M uh, pitch. And I thought, well, what's all that about? Why is that woman tied up? You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't understand it. I was like, what the F is that? Adam and the ants, Adam and, uh, I suppose, oh, I get the wordplay, whatever. That was the first time I ever had any, yeah. ever seen it. So had you met Vivian at this stage? Because did she kit out the band? Ooh. Vivian Westwood? No, no, no. This was way before that. Like this is Adam and Yance, and it, they were very punk. And uh, in my experience, it it was like walking into another world. My experience of punk to that point had been to go to the shows, you know. And I'd seen the I, I'd seen the Damned, uh, Generation X. Um, I hadn't seen the Pistols. Uh, I'd seen the Clash. I'd seen a lot of the punk bands around at that time as a, as a as a punter and been at the front moshing and you know just enjoying the energy. It was fun, you know. Yes. I'd never seen Adam and the Ants, so but when I walked into that thing, it was you know tense to go to an audition. I must have been seventeen, eighteen, and you know I had this big bloody flight case that I'd had to take on a bus, and then um, get it out. And Adam had like a sweater on and a pair of, you know, round glasses. And I said, well, where's Adam then? Because I've seen these pictures of him all done up. Oh, I'm Adam. <laughs> uh, Matthew wasn't there. Dave was there. And the two guys from Do It Records, this is where I was doing the audition. 
Do It Records, the ones that put out Dirk Wiz White Songs. Yeah. And they've been recording that in the previous weeks and months, and Adam wasn't satisfied with Andy Warren. He didn't like what Andy was doing, I don't know. And um, so he, he wanted to try someone else, and that's that's how I the opportunity came up for me. And uh, and I met Andy later. He used to come to the shows. He's a very nice guy. He had no, you know, <laughs> just a really, he, he was really fine about it. And then he ended up with Bid in um, the monochrome set, and they did really well. You know? Yes. So he was, he was he was okay. He was yes. kind of the more arty side. And in terms of your question, um, from what I gathered, hanging around with them, as the, uh, Adam had done that film with Derek Jarman, Jubilee, and um, he would talk about Jordan and that uh, bunch of people and all that kind of stuff. And But I never met any of them at that point. I was just in Do It Records. Yes. Uh, Ian, oh, Ian yeah. So did was Mark, was Marco a bit of a standout guitarist at that, you know, in your, in that scene? I, uh, possibly, but I wasn't in the scene. I just joined the band. I never knew Marco. I'd heard the name Rema Rema. I'd seen it in the anime or something. You yes. know, I knew nothing. I was pretty green. I was in my own little world with 57 men who were who were more sort of pop, new wave with punk elements and a little bit of jazz and weirdness, but but fun. You know, it wasn't punk, but it was new wave, quote unquote, the English version of new wave. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, I, I wasn't I'd left that punk world a little bit because I didn't wasn't going to the shows. I was busy doing shows with fifty seven men. Yes. So then you play. Do you? Is this right? You just play one gig with Adam. This is the That's electric, right. electric ballroom, ballroom, Camden, New Year's Day, nineteen eighty. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. And um, you know that that day when I joined, he gave me a copy of Dirk Wears White Socks and a bunch of singles, and he said, "Well, you've got to learn all these songs by tomorrow at eleven a.m." Yeah, and this was like six or seven at night. I'm like, oh, God. So I, I pulled it all night. I'm learning all the songs. <laughs> I had to learn 22 songs. And um, I think I got, I know, you know, I made little notes here and there, you know, bar free, this one, you know, whatever. I got through about 10 or 11 songs and I made one tiny mistake. And they all stopped and went, what are you doing? And they weren't very friendly. They weren't friendly. You know, it was different. I, I was used to Glenn Gregory and the friendly, charming people and everyone. They were just cold. Yes. Adam was like, this is your job, and I was going to get £40 a week, you know, which was the first time I'd earned a weekly wage being in a band. So I knew that this was a diff. I was going to another level. I wasn't just hanging out with my mates and having fun and playing shows. This was a job. I thought, well, I've got to buck up. So I better learn these bloody songs. And I, you know, we went down to this place they called the toilet at 11 a.m. <laughs> set up, and uh, you know, like I said, after like 10, 11 songs, I just went, but tiniest mistake, and just all put their instruments down. And I was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" So no, I just well, don't. What do you think we are? A bunch of fucking hippies? You know, were you going to jam now? Should we jam, Dave? Come on. He wants to jam. I said, well, I wasn't jamming. I was just, yeah. well, don't just, don't, if you fucking make a mistake when we do this show, I'm going to kick you out of the band in front of 3,000 punks. 
And I'm like, okay, you better be okay. Don't do it again. So, I, you know, these were songs I'd learned the night before with no sleep. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, that was tough. And yeah. I thought, well, you just got to do the job. And so I did. I played the next songs. It was all fine. And then afterwards, Adam was like, that was good. I think it's really good. You know, I really like it. And the other guys were like, yeah, it's really good. And um, we were rehearsing for that show that was coming up on New Year's Eve. And gradually I, I got into it. I didn't say much. I kept my mouth shut. So they started to think I was really dumb. You know, they, <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> I'm at, you know, I was a bit intimidated. And, um, but I knew I was kind of tough because I, you know, lived in the East End and I, I, I wasn't worried like that. But I knew these guys were sort of more mouth than, than you know, they weren't really actually that tough. They were just tough in terms of their task mastering. Yes. I guess Adam was very fair focused enough. in getting to the goal, wasn't he? Yeah. And which was fair enough. It was good. It's like having a really tough coach. It was, there was nothing wrong with that. And anyway, so I responded and, and gradually they loosened up towards me. And um, and then Adam started to mention that he got Malcolm McLaren coming along and wanted to, uh, you know, do a video for Car Trouble. And then, um, and then we met Malcolm at another rehearsal place, and you know, and, and he held court, and I was, thought, oh my god, this really is another world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, the rest is history. You know, we 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 parted from Adam, and then, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to go on too much. It'll take you forever. But anyway, yes, so you that know what was, happened? Yeah, well, vaguely. But then, so so you did you just leave the the ants? By the way, the yes, because I don't actually kind of completely know that story. So, um, so did you played the one gig. Was it called Future Music for? Oh God, I missed it. I know, I like that. It was a, there was a lot of Mu other oh, bands. Mu music for a future age. It was billed as something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I didn't have any part of that. I was stressed on that gig because. Uh, They'd rented a, a bass amp. It was an Ampeg SVT, and it didn't work. So, and it was New Year's Eve. So I'm, you know, 18 years old, trying to figure out. No one, no one was in charge of it apart from me. I kind of knew if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. I couldn't just make an excuse. So I was ringing around all the rental companies trying to get a bass rig because this one didn't work. It was blown. You know, it wasn't. It was more than just a fuse. I knew how to change a fuse. And um, so that was very stressful. I thought, oh, God, my really my first big gig, and I've got to deal with this. So I was on the phone for hours trying to get, you know, in a payphone in the hallway of the gig dressing room. Got it fixed. They, finally, someone showed up with a bass rig just before the first band come on. So that was very stressful. And then we did the show, and it was great. You know, I didn't make any mistakes. Um. They had pyros. The, the crowd was amazing. Adam was amazing. You know, I thought, well, now I now I see what what the deal is with these guys. Yes. Adam was a fantastic front man. And then, um, yeah, and then Malcolm sort of convinced us to do new music. It was nineteen eighty and a year, and um, we we did stuff with Adam for a few months, a couple of months, and then. Um, we didn't think it was working out. We thought me, me and Dave thought that we'd kind of found this new thing, this Latin Afro thing, and 
Matthew too, and we, we thought we could do better on our own. And Malcolm made an offer just saying basically that, um, you know, I'll be your manager. You just need to find a new singer and Adam Adam will be fine. And it, it was it was rough. I'd never pulled any drama things like that before. I wasn't sure. But so, but we did do it. I just thought that Adam was, was nice to me. You know, he wasn't horrible. Like I say, he was tough, but he wasn't, it was, it was reasonable amount of toughness just to get the best out of me and everyone else. So I didn't have anything against him, but I just thought that if I stay with Adam, he could just fire me. I'm just 40 pounds a week just because he doesn't like the clothes I'm wearing or just gets bored of me. Mm. You know, I noticed it'd been through a bunch of guitar players and I was the second bass player. And I thought, you know, if I had my own band, Malcolm sold it to us as being our own band. Uh, we'd have our own democracy and we would split everything equally. And um, that felt more like a, a, a promising prospect. But I didn't want to betray Adam. I didn't. And uh, it was difficult. And um, But we did. And uh, we went off and uh, Adam got a band with Marco. I didn't know who Marco was, really. Right. Don't ask me about him. So then I found out about Marco, and they had things in the paper about him being in a band called Rema Rema. So that's when I found out about Rema Rema. Right. So the, uh, your, your your universe didn't um, didn't sort of slightly cross over, did it? You just went off. No, by then you changed. Yeah. And you'd formed a new band. So we did that all. I mean, you had an amazingly, I mean, talking to various people about that, often that kind of creative moment in life, like every month, you know, they look back and go, my God, that, that year, you know, there was that month and then this month happened and something ma major happened in that month, you know, which doesn't sort of happen quite so much. And also you don't really want it to be happening quite so much when you get older. But do you sort of find yeah. that when you look back, you know, that kind of that period, how much kind of was so much rapid sort of movement going on at this stage? Absolutely. And it, I think it is related to in terms uh, to your age, you know, as you're becoming a, a, an adult and finding your way in the world, you find all these different opportunities and forks in the road seem to be coming at you thick and fast. And um, I was lucky. It was a time uh, of great creativity um, in London and in the, the world that I live in. Like I said, when I was a teenager, I was people were knocking on my door, 13, asking me to join bands. And, you know, yes. had, like I said, the guy from T-Rex living around the corner. So you could literally almost put your hand out and touch something that was related <laughs> to it, you know, in that world. And it's about being in the time and place and then going on from that, uh, found out, I thought, I realised, you know, people seemed to think I was good. I thought, well, it seemed to be getting me on, you know. Yeah, absolutely. More and more things happening here and so, there. So did Bow Wow Wow, did that sort of just, did the stars kind of line up really quickly and it just kind of, the, you found the sound, you know, quite smoothly? Well, it, 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 it was a natural thing, but it actually goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the parties at my house. Because we had a record called Burundi Black. Oh, and we right. used to play it. Um, our neighbours across the way were African, and my neighbours uh, to the other side were from Jamaica. And at Christmas, you know, we'd be in and out of their house and, you know, playing music, and it was fun. And I'd hear 
reggae and funk and Afro music coming through the walls. I didn't like it. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, complain about it. I liked it. So I already had experience of Afro music, and I like Latin music too. It turns out Dave was a uh, uh, was a, a Santana fan. Right. Too. We love that. And he yes. comes from Dave's dad was from Mauritius. Mauritius is a, and if you know, an island in the Indian Ocean. It's a French colony. But it has influences from, you know, it's like a pirate base. Yes. Dave's real name is Barbarossa, you know, it's bread beer. So, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so there's a mixture in terms of African and Indian. And, um, uh, and I've met people from Mauritius since then, and their music is Calypso. I thought, how did that happen? You know, they have this kind of more Caribbean sound, yet they're a complete continent of Africa is in the way yes. between them. And uh, but that's the way it is, I suppose, the French influence or something, the way things go. So Dave already had that influence, I suppose, from at home. And he just, and Malcolm said, well, let's just get him some timbales. And he just took to him like a duck to water. I mean, it was just naturally flowing. And I took to it too. And it was just the most fun to just fuck around and play this new thing that we'd found. <laughs> we, you know, it it all just came in a moment. You know, it and uh, the way I played the bass and the way you played the drums, it was just like, wow, this is such fun. It was just fun. <laughs> yes, and you, I mean, your first single was was extraordinary. You know, it's like forty two years, but it still sounds amazing, doesn't it? Did that come together? Like, was that one of those moments that just kind of came together in about a few minutes, and you went, "Oh, actually, I think that's quite good." Uh, a mixture, a mixture, because Adam was still in the band, and Malcolm had put this task to us, you know, come up with a new sound and all that stuff. And, and I remember this song, uh, uh, Burundi Black. The beat, the, 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 and uh, and Adam and Malcolm have put together a tape of twenty three tracks of, of all different songs, and he wanted us to interpret them. And one, on one of one of those songs was Burundi Black. I, thought, oh, I remember that. It's what I used to play when I was a kid on a little drum, you know, with, at the family parties. Yes. but it was sped up. It was sped up from thirty three to forty five. I don't know why. So instead of it was. So I thought, well, how am I going to get that beat? So I just muted the strings on the bass and, um, you know, scratched the strings. So, and um, I went to the rehearsals. Oh, I've got this idea. It goes like this to Dave. And, um, and Adam said, that's good. What, Dave, why don't you just do what he did? And he said to Matthew, why don't you mute the strings and do what he So three of us just went. We thought, oh fuck! And Malcolm was there, so that's your sound. <laughs> <laughs> that's your sound. That moment was quick, but after that, how we developed it into a song and the lyrics took a long time. The right. lyrics took forever. But um, but the C thirty bit, which is one of the bits I came up with, and we all had our little bits that we came up with. I was sitting in Mickey Foot's studio in Camden, another place in Camden. Mickey Foot was the guy that worked for the Clash. Right. And Bernie Rhodes was the manager. And they had this little, they had this studio, uh, had a little studio and had a, a warehouse uh, in Camden. 
it's all been built up now. Uh, uh, it's not even the building is still there, but it's uh, it's like a shop that sells techno stuff. I don't know. It's weird. You'd have to go there anyway. So we're sitting in there, and it and I was trying to get that. If you listen to the original Burundi Black, there's like a weird rhythm where it's did that, did that, did that, did that, and it's totally non-Western, and um. It's hard to find a one. So I was trying to reinterpret that with the, the pattern on the rhythm. And we Malcolm was talking about all these cassettes and you know they talk about um you've got a C fair and you've got this, you've got that. And he's he didn't know how to scan or or make a rhyme or anything like that. It just it came out of the content. So it's, in a second it just sort of came to me. It's like C fair, C six, C nine, go, C three O, C six. <laughs> and me and Dave worked it out in about in about 20 seconds that bit right Matthew came up with the chords to go to the chorus you know the C30 C6 C90 go off the, the melodic part then I had the idea for changing key uh, to just to keep the thing going and we weren't songwriters you know it's the first time we'd ever written songs any of us yes and, and then so you know we were finding our way, listening to songs and trying to figure out how they were made and that kind of thing. And um, then it took, like, I don't know, wigs going around to other people's houses, hanging out at Dave's lounge, my lounge, trying to come up with the lyrics. And it, it was Malcolm would come up with a broad idea. It was actually Dave that came up with a lot of the, the rap. You know, every day I get a brand new show. TV record and radio. A lot of that was Dave. Yes, so, and he's written a couple of books now. So he was, he was the, the most literary. literary so, so when when did you get this? When did you get your singer? When did she appear? Because was that, that was later? We, we were auditioning a lot of people. I mean, literally grabbing them off the street, saying, "Do you want to join a band?" <laughs> people we knew, friends of friends putting posters up in art school and then getting kicked out by the security people. We, I went to a Pentecostal church to see if we could find like a, you know, a young black kid that, that could sing like Frankie Lyman. But um, I couldn't couldn't find anyone. Going out to nightclubs, putting my own disco clothes on that I hadn't worn in years, going to a club, you know, seeing anyone that was a good dancer, asking them. It, it was mayhem. Very Malcolm, but we were we auditioned. I don't know a hundred people. God knows. Yes. So Kirsty McCall, she almost she never came. I spoke to her on the phone, and she seemed really nice. And I could just stop. We'd heard that she had a really great voice, and she did. And she's passed away now, but she was great. She'd have been good. Um, Another lady that went on to was uh, Hazy Fantasy. What's her name? Oh um, yes, she auditioned with us. Kate, Kate, um, Kate Garner, Kate something. She's a photographer now. Anyway, she was the singer, and she we rehearsed, we auditioned her with C thirty C sixteen. We weren't sure about her, but she was good. Uh, Francis Raphael. Um, she went on to do. Uh, she was like the. She did Les, Mis- Les Miserables. Right. Uh, she won a Tony Award and all that. She's done pretty well. Um, it was a bunch of people. Lots. And, and like I say, the idea was to be multicultural. We had multicultural music. 
uh, we wanted multicultural people in the band. Malcolm said, you know, you should try gay, you know, gay, straight, whatever. Uh, so we wanted to reflect the modern cosmopolitan London that I had definitely grown up in. And so Dave, Dave, we were all from mixed backgrounds. Yes. Uh, you know, mine, Irish, Welsh, Spanish, you know, um, Annabella later on, she's Burmese and English. Dave is Mauritius, his mum's like Jewish, Russian, you know. We, we come from a lot of different uh, backgrounds. And we wanted a, you know, someone that reflected that as a singer. And um, if they were young or older, black, white, whatever race, or, you know, like I said, straight, whatever, uh, or gay or whatever, we, we, we wanted someone to reflect that. And, um, and we tried. And someone saw Annabella, and this was... This was two or three months after we'd been writing and trying to come up with songs. And, and C30 was our first song that we, we finished, we wrote. And I, that was, I suppose, in the early months of 1980. Yes. And, and um, So when she appeared, did, you, did she just like, was that like, yep, yeah, that's it, the, the, the final part of the jigsaw, or was there sort of any doubt? Quite, yeah, kind of. I mean, we... Um, Malcolm had always said to us, look, when you find the right singer, you'll just laugh. What's he on about, you know? You'll just laugh. He said that when we saw Johnny Rotten, you know, doing the thing at the ju jukebox in the shop, so we all just stopped and laughed. And he was right. He was the, the one. So we said, okay, well, you know, I didn't really understand. But, but she was uh, uh, working in a dry cleaner's and a guy called Dave Fischel, who was a, uh, a piano player who works at West End shows. Uh, and somehow Mal he bumped into Malcolm. He's one of these people that Malcolm knew and lived in West Hampstead. And he was going down to get his dry cleaning. And he noticed this girl that was working there that was just um, uh, doing singing along to um, the radio. I think it was uh, Stevie Wonder. Right. So, so and it, it, you know, like I said, we were just trying anyone. And he said, would you like to try and sing in a band? And she says, okay. So he gave her a time and a place. And she brought her friend down, I don't know, a few days later, three or four days later, she showed up with her school friend. And um, and we were in a, we were in a rehearsal room in Tooley Street, just sort of, parallel with the Thames and not you know not a healthy place damp and you know not a nice place anyway but we were there rehearsing and we tried her out with uh, uh, Where Were You On My Wedding Day which was an old rockabilly traditional song Where Were You On My Wedding Day and Cast Iron Arm I think and um I think we tried her a little bit on C30. We had a little bit of that. We tried a few little songs. Yes. And she first started singing uh, Where Were You On My Wedding Day. She didn't really understand a mic. You know, her just went on a mic. She went, Where Were You? And we went, Wow. <laughs> and we stopped and started laughing. And I went, Wow, that's what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> that's what he meant. I said, You know, she did well and she left. 
I said, you know what? She was pretty good. But she was a young girl. She was a young school girl. I don't know. I, think, I can't remember if she was 13 or 14. And, um, you know, very inexperienced. And I said, well, you know, she could be the person that work, works for us. And um, then we told Malcolm about her. He wasn't there at the rehearsal place. And then he went up there to where she lived, which was in West Hampstead, to meet her mum and her family, you know, to talk about it with Dave Fischel. And, um, you know, of course, they're, they're, they're very sceptical about some guy like Mark McLaren who had a reputation for the Pestles coming to your house saying, I want your 14-year-old daughter singing my band. Yes. Uh, but we weren't the Sex Pistols. We weren't, you know, we weren't... Um, we weren't all so rough and ready. We were more about music. You know, we were more, uh, we were more about the fun of the music. That was our thing, the colourfulness of it. We thought, you know, she's Burmese. She looks a different. She, she reflected the, our multicultural aspirations and whatnot. Yes. And um, so we thought, you know, so, so Malcolm, he hadn't seen her at this point, and he went to, to see her and her, her mum and to see how it would go. So then we were also still trying out other singers, all these other people that I mentioned. And um, and then we, we tried a few times to record. Uh, I think we, t we went to record at Chaz Chandler's place in Port Portland Place. Uh, that didn't work out. Um, then we went to Shepparton Studios and recorded, I think, Den, the guy from Wings had a studio there. That didn't work out. And then it eventually we ended up at Morgan Studios, I think in April. Uh, and then we recorded C30 uh, on the Six Love Apache, Giant Size Baby thing, and uh, Louis Couture's. We recorded those four backing tracks in like two hours. And Sunsea and Piracy. Yeah, we just knocked them out. We hit a we hit a groove. We didn't hit the right groove on the other places. Yes. It was we were very organic like that. But especially me, I would if I wasn't on a good day, I'd come into the control and listen back. Like, ah, that didn't, that didn't work. But we had this really good engineer. I don't remember his name, a little hippie guy with sandwiches. You know, <laughs> uh, with like a bowl haircut, who was just a great engineer. And Morgan was, you know, a, fa a famous studio that they had Zeppelin, I think, I don't know, loads of classic tracks had come out of that place. I found out later, yes. you know, at the time. And we just, we just hit a roll and we knocked it out of the park. And we all knew it. And we all just like, it, everything was fluid. Our playing was good. The sound we got was good. The engineering was good. We'd done it. We'd nailed it. And then we had to do the vocals. So we, you know, we got her in to do the vocals and she was good, but what that good, it, it, it was difficult. It was difficult for her. But she still, it was still the best we had and she was still doing pretty damn good for, you know, a young girl from the suburbs. And, um, well, sunny suburbs of, of West Hampstead. But Malcolm always had his doubts and, you know, Matthew had his doubts, the guitar player. But I thought it was working. And um, 
it was just difficult because she wasn't professional. Us guys, we'd all been playing since we were 13 years old. Yes. She was just starting. And we were sort of, eight. I think I was 18, 19 at that point. Matthew was like 17, 18. He was still pretty young. But we'd all been playing a long time and, and, and done, I don't know, especially Dave and Matthew had probably done hundreds of shows, hundreds yes. of shows, I don't know, 50. And I'd probably done about 50 shows and, and recorded and, but um, but yeah, so we, we just persevered, and eventually we, we got what we wanted, and then we got a deal. Did you ever get? Way. Was George ever going to be part of this sort of lineup? This of the was band? that was that was years later, right? Like, years later. Too, oh, okay then. So, because John Peel, the great John Peel, he plays that single quite soon after you have obviously released it or recorded Wait, it. Which one? Um, C30. C, C, C30, I mean, he plays it, does he play it sort of in the summertime and then you get a John Peel session that same year? That's right. I remember the John Peel session. I can't remember the exact year. It must have been, I think it was, I think we did it twice because we did songs that we hadn't written then. Yeah, we did Fools Rush In and you can get it on YouTube. Yeah. Found it. And I think even on Spotify. Anyway, so... Yeah, it was released on, I think, Strange Fruit Records via EMI. That's right, because you did I Want My Baby on Mars, Fools Rush In, Radio G and El Pachi. Yeah, that's right. I remember it. Blimey, I know. God damn. Yes. So, I mean, you get that kind of great moment with the pill, which is... Well, you never... But he's not there. No. And you show up at Made of Vale Studios where they recorded it. He's not there. He has a producer guy and an engineer. And you have to do what you took, you know, months to figure out and do. And yet, but we were good like that. We just, uh, and I think we'd done a few shows by then. So we were, we were pretty good at playing live the songs. And um, and we knocked it all out. And, you know, you only get like a couple of hours, a few hours, that's it, to do the whole thing. Did you have Dale Griffin? From Mott the Hoop, or was he your producer on that one? Was it John Robinson or someone like that? I can't remember. Dale Griffin sounds familiar, but so does John Robinson. <laughs> I can't remember. He was a very nice bloke, but you know, you have this limited amount of time and you just, everything is done real quick. I remember they had a really nice old EMI board, which was classic. And, um, uh, you know, it's all going to tape. I remember they had to do a lot of sort of, you just had one take a lot of the time, you know. You had to do it one or two takes, and that was it. Yeah. Boom, boom. The vocals, boom, 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 yeah. it was done, that was it. But so we did all right. Yeah, because you know? you're on EMI Records, and by the end of the year, you put out your your uh, your cassette pet, which is kind yeah. of like, was it 12 songs, wasn't it? So you really started I, to get into quite a groove at this stage, haven't you? Yeah, I think it was eight songs, but uh, but we've recorded the the other songs after the Morgan Studios, we went into Abbey Road. Right. In September of 1980. And, uh, you know, we'd done a few shows by then and written a few more songs. And and um, so we kind of got a bit more confident about things. And I think we'd settled more on Annabella as a singer. And... Um, you know, like you said earlier about a few months changing really quick. I mean, those changes were pretty fast. But that 
I think the Morgan sessions were like April, May. Uh, C30 came out as a single in June. Uh, we'd signed to AMI just before that, and then we went to Abbey Road, which was on the EMI studio back then, in September. And we're, that's where we recorded um, Falls Rush In, uh, Radio G String, Gold, he said. Uh, anyway. Yes, my God. I mean, it's it's. I'll take this phone call. Hold it a second. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll pause it now. Wait a minute. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. Yes. So you look the year. So so it's kind of. I mean, this might not have affected you because you were so in the zone. But sort of the early eighties. You know, Thatcher got in seventy nine. You had the 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 Falkland War, the uh, the the miners' strike. Yeah. You had. Green and yeah. Common. I mean, and then it was different musical scenes. There was that sort of post-punk. There was that sort of new romantic, the Blitz kids kind yeah. of stuff. There was new Paisley. Were you kind of, was this all kind of tripping into your consciousness at this type of stage? Or yeah, were you absolutely. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, I was politically aware. I wasn't politically active. But, you know, I grew up in a, in a working class environment. My dad was... Uh, you know, a union member, the print union, and uh, he used to bring home six newspapers every morning, and I would I would read them, you know, with my toast and breakfast before I went to school. Right. So I was pretty informed. And my dad told me early on, he said to me, uh, he said, there's a lots of ways of looking at the same story. He says, you'll, you'll read the same story in the Daily Telegraph and then read the same story in the Daily Worker or or... or I can't remember what the communist paper was back then. Morning Star. You know, it actually had a couple. The Morning Star said, you read the same story and you'll see the difference. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. Yes. You know, he used to say, you know, the reporter from the Morning Star was beaten up by the police. like, like, like. And no one heard about that, but my dad would hear about it. But he wasn't, you know, a communist. Or, but he was more left of centre than anything. You know, and when he was sixty something years old, the police made him climb a fence because he was he was on the picket line at the News International in Wapping. Right. You know, and Murdoch fired everyone overnight, which is incredible. Anyway, so yeah, I was politically aware and wasn't a big fan of Thatcher. And um, you know, my dad was part of the toy drive to get the miners' strike toys that the miners that were on strike, you know, to get them toys for their kids at Christmas. You know, that was the kind of thing where there was some solidarity going on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I was aware of all that, I suppose. But my dad was careful, like he gave me that example of the newspapers, not to be completely indoctrinated one way or the other, make my own mind up. But I could see, you know, and I'd had that whole class thing at my school, and um, but it wasn't a big deal. There was a meritocratic path to succeed, I thought, in England. And um, despite my accent, but, you know, every now and then I got reminded, you know, if you had a Cockney accent, you were regarded as a bit thick. But I wasn't thick. You know, I'd got more A-levels than these bloody guys. And, um, and uh, you know, so I was I was aware of all that stuff. And... Um, and Malcolm was obviously a bit left of centre, <laughs> but he was radical. You know, it was kind of crazy. And uh, but we weren't going to. We weren't like the Clash. 
You know, they were much more uh, political. Our way of dealing with it was a more artistic way, a more, I suppose, you could say obtuse, but was was to just have a, a an example of of a benefit of multiculturalism, which was our band and our music. I mean, nowadays you might say, oh, we were culturally appropriating. <laughs> I suppose we were, but we didn't uh, know any better. We are doing it out of love. You know, yes. I love that music. So that's why we did it like that. You know, yes. later on, it might not have been cool, but, but we were kids and I loved that music and we wanted to incorporate it. And I suppose that was our way of politically saying, look, you know, um, we're exa- an example of what Britain can produce from all these different cultures. And this is what we come up with. And it's a lot of bloody fun. And it's yes. you know, and it's not like your face direct thing. It's it's the antithesis of the grey Britain that Thatcher wanted to create, and you know, just look down on us poor pros, and you know, and just think that oh, if we weren't happening, we there was that whole eighties attitude of, um, you know, if you weren't rich and happening, there was something wrong with you, which still is pervasive, you know, in America and here uh, and and England, that to get ahead. You know, if you didn't get ahead, it was your fault. You know, yes. And it, the other side of that coin is was like I said, there was a meritocracy. Even if you did have a Cockney accent, if even if you did grow up in a tower block, in you could still do well. You know, you could still do well, become famous, or or make money, or um, you could still do well. But still, that didn't mean, from my point of view, you had to trample on everybody else. And that was the the attitude I, I didn't like, you know, yes. because everyone could do well. You didn't have to be an a-hole to people that, you know, just weren't, if they weren't smart, it's not their fault, you know, if they yes. didn't have the opportunities, if they weren't born in a certain time or a certain place, it's not their fault. So they don't deserve to be trampled on or made to live or steer lives. That's That was my attitude and my attitude now. But, um, so, yes, that was part of my consciousness in answer to your question. But yes. our, our way of dealing with it was, like I said, in, in an artistic, expressive way, you know, not not too, not too at the top of our consciousness. It was kind of in the mid-level. Malcolm was more vociferous about that kind of thing. But, but I went along with it. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was uh, colourful. It was uh, very colourful. Yeah. I mean, because because that the following year, you know, you do quite a lot of tours, don't you? You you tour with is it the Pretenders, and then you do um, yeah. oh the Police in in the in the states. So right. Was it your first tour in the in America? I guess at this stage, no, we've done at least one, maybe two short tours of America, two or three weeks at a time right. before that. And um, I can't remember the exact order, but yeah, we toured with the Police. Which was great for us in terms of, um, you know, exposure, and we did good. But they weren't very nice to us, and um, you know, they like hid the food and didn't give us the base units in our sound. So we were all mid treble, <laughs> and Sting tried to hit up my girlfriend. You know, uh, you know, it was. And years later, I met him in a studio in London. I was working on Mount McLaren stuff. Right. That was. I was working at Townhouse Studios, and uh, he was in the next room. Uh, no, I was working on Gary Kemp's stuff. I worked on Gary Kemp's solo album. And um, he came in and said, oh, I really like the sound of what you're doing. Okay, yeah. 
said, do you want to come and have a listen to my mix? I'm, yeah, of course, you know, I'm fucking <laughs> going in next door, listen to Sting. And I've been hanging out with his producer at the lunch table and stuff, just having a chit-chat and stuff like that. Very nice bloke, Gus Dudgeon. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it was all very cool and informal. I listened to his mix and I thought, you know, it sounds a bit sibilant, but I'm not going to say a word because, you know, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> <laughs> so I kept my mouth shut. And, of course, that song, I can't remember which one, but it was a huge hit, went number one all over the world. Well, good job I kept my mouth shut. And I just mentioned to him, I said, you know, you know, I toured with you uh, in the 80s, in 81. He said, did you? Yeah, about how I said, oh, yeah. He said, was I an asshole? I said, kind of. He went, I'm really sorry. He said, I was an asshole to everyone back then. So I'm really <laughs> sorry. I, you know, so he, decades later, he apologized for it. But anyway, it wasn't, it was a good experience in terms of our exposure, but you know, it was kind of a weird atmosphere playing with it. Pretenders, yeah. completely other planet. They were like, you know, like your best friends. They treated us like, they were just amazing. You know, they were really nice people. And sadly, the, the guitar player and, and bass player died like a little bit after that tour. Yes. James Honeyman Scott and Pete Farmer. And they were the, just the two nicest guys we'd ever met in bands before. They just couldn't have been nicer. I mean, I don't know. We, they even got us on stage at the end of the last show in front of, I don't know, tens of thousands of people, and we did C30 with them. And they came to our gig. We did a little club gig at the Kabuki Theatre in San Francisco, and they joined in with us and, you know, in our little crowd. Fantastic. They didn't believe. Yeah, they were just, I, you know, it was very hard when they found out what had happened to them. We, God, the, Two nicest people we'd met, you know, along with Chrissy Hine. Yeah. Yeah, they they were just that was an amazing experience. And then musically, but what was that song? I go to sleep. Oh sleep. yes, I go to sleep, yeah. Yeah, that, that guitar part, da 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 da. He would play that flawlessly every night. And we'd be sitting at the side of the stage going, you know, wow. And he would always give us a little wink, you know, like that. They just effortless, you know. They they were the nicest. I'm I'm gushing now, but I I just can't say <laughs> enough that how how nicely we were treated on that tour, and uh, you know how sad we were when they passed. It was awful. Yeah. And years later, me and Dave were trying to get something together after Bow Wow, you know, in the, the mid eighties, late eighties, and we ended up in. Uh, the, the pretenders manager's office you know trying to get I don't know just have a meeting because you know we stayed in touch over the years and um, me and Dave were just talk, talking to him and then, then the phone rings and it's Chrissy Hind on the line and he puts it on speakerphone he says oh I've got Dave and Lee in here from Bow and she goes oh great how are you guys doing you know, she goes you guys are assholes you split the band up two of my guys died I fucking carried on <laughs> what's the deal with you why do you keep that band going you stupid bastards she chewed us out <laughs> and we're like uh, well you know she was right of course you know we had no answer but she was just trying to be nice really you know in her own way yes absolutely so we... like tough love kind of thing. yes well she was she had a nice way about her did you you know when you went to see you know, 
that year you brought out and recorded Sea Jungle. Um, did did that sort of the material of that all come together again? Did the writing process and and sort of um, song the songs did they did you sort of find yourself as a unit sort of being able to start to sort of bring bring some sort of um, narrative to it? A little bit, yeah. It became easier. And Matthew started to really blossom, actually, as a, as a songwriter in terms of that. And I enjoyed working with him. And um, uh, we started to really work well together. And um, it was easier and faster. Still difficult. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of, you know, writing songs, like I said, we weren't songwriters. We were all instrumentalists. So we were trying to use our insights and you know, listen to how other songs are written and um you know you know what the structure was and we, we gradually started to get a clue yes <laughs> some of our songs were a little all over the place and some of them kind of were more classically pop and as time went on we became more more uh um a bit more wise to, to yes. what, how to do I mean, it. Do, you know, I mean, obviously, <laughs> Go Wild in the Country is, you know, the one that sort of gets quite catapulted. How did that song come about? I mean, can you remember was, the um, process of that? I can. Uh, it was, uh, we had a song called Sexy Eiffel Towers where we had different, we had different sort of templates for songs, that, which we repeated. We had like our C30 Burundi type songs, which were, you know, Sun Sea and Piracy, yes. Radio G String, and a hybrid of that was uh, Aphrodisiac, where we mixed kind of jazz, sort of rockabilly, and Burundi beats. You know, that was Aphrodisiac. Anyway, um, so I'd done a bunch of sort of classical little riffs, uh, and it was the same chord. It was the D chord. I was just playing around with the. I'd written it as a waltz. It was like da 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 da. And Matthew said, "Let's straighten it up and speed it up." And that became da 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 da. That became "Sexy Eiffel Towers." So I thought, "Well, let's let's do a Sexy Eiffel Towers Mark Two." So I started playing around with the same chords, and I came up with this chord sequence that became the chorus of "Sexy Eiffel Towers." Uh, not sexy after hours, go out in the country. So, yeah. and I, I did the same thing. We did the same sort of similar chords in the verses, which was basically just the three chord, basic three chords. And I was playing cello parts, you know, cello. And um, so what I thought was a cello part. And the bass line to the, to the chorus, which doesn't actually fit, Records perfect, but anyway, <laughs> I nicked from Offenbach, uh, you know, the guy that wrote the Can Can, yes, da, 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 and he had another piece coming, and it was uh, and um, I took that part and used that as the baseline for the chorus, and um, and we mixed in a bit of sort of Afro Latin uh, chords, all sort of basic stuff. And then we did that song, and then we also put, I had an idea for um, flamenco. I'd always always loved flamenco on the classic guitar. I couldn't play it properly, but I could try. And Matthew played along with me. And um, 
yeah, just basic chords like E A minor to E minor, and A E, things like that. Just classic uh, spaghetti western flamenco-y Latin Spanish kind of thing. And we did that in the same afternoon in the studio in Pimlico, the rehearsal place, just from sort of few half ideas I had. And then Matthew sort of added his bit. And that the other guys didn't like those songs. They said, they, <laughs> they're like, we don't like this. It's too much. It's your kind of style. We, we want weirder stuff. I said, oh, anyway. So that was how those two songs came about. One became an instrumental. And then, you know, over the next couple of weeks, you know, we'd make cassettes of them in the rehearsal room. We'd work with those cassettes and try and write lyrics on the top. And then Malcolm had the idea to call it Go Wild. Go wild. And then he, he wanted to say sex in the grass. So Malcolm can't keep putting sex in everything. We call <laughs> it snakes in the grass. Yeah. So snakes in the grass are absolutely free. Right. And it was yeah. a sort it was sort of a thing about um anti-consumerism, anti-fast food. Well not anti, just you know, a lot of our lyrics came from Malcolm's idea of they were impressionistic. They weren't they weren't prosaic. You know, it was they were colourful kind of semi pictures. You know, yes. they they didn't follow a linear path. The lyrics, you know, I, I kind of like that. Absolutely, I mean, it's amazing, and it, and the the album is a huge success, and you pick up a huge audience at this stage, don't you? People start dressing like the band or some sort of yeah. idea of the band. What's that kind of success like? I mean, getting sort of suddenly kind of into the top 10 albums, album charts and sort of having a hit single and being on top of the pops. and um... it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, and of course it, it goes back to when I was a kid crawling around looking at the black and white TV of the Rolling Stones when I was really little. You think, uh, you know, you feel like you've made it, quote unquote. We weren't rich, we weren't making a lot of money, but we definitely had that feeling. I think, you know, the first time we did Top of the Pops was time when we thought oh wow you know this, this is it we've really done it you do top of the pops just once you feel like well i've done something you know, i've achieved something not such a big deal now because you know youngsters don't even know what top of the pops is <laughs> yes this is true but, but, actually but people of yours and my generation it was a cultural phenomenon it was something that the whole country watched on a thursday night thursday and, night and um, yes absolutely it was um, so it did and- feel like something, and the next day I remember going to the news agents and buying the newspaper, and the bloke said, "Oh, you were on top of the pups last night." And I get shocked, get recognised the first minute you go out. <laughs> but, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And uh, said, "Oh, well done." You know, and you, you know, boys you up a little bit, and um, and mostly it was fun. It was like what you'd always dreamed of. It was fun, but along with that. Uh, Malcolm had an incredible work ethic. I mean, we worked really hard. Um, he showed us how to do stuff, you know, how to get something done. You were up at night. You were up at seven, eight. You were on the phones. You were writing songs at nine. And you worked damn hard, focused, and you know, with high levels of critique up until six, and then you stopped. And then Uncle Malcolm would take us to the movies or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it was funny, you know, on a Sunday you'd want to go to the park. And I think he enjoyed that, you know, just hanging out with us and stuff. And we, were, we were a little bit weirded out by it, but we thought, well, 
what the hell, you know, it's, it's kind of nice. Yes. But we worked hard that day, you know, in the, in the daytime or uh, um, sort of half the weekend and after six, not always, but generally he taught you how to just hit it hard, hit the day hard, make a list of phone calls you have to make, push hard, get yeah. that song done, finish that bass line, record that song, do those lyrics. I mean, it really was, and we responded well to it. And he he was amazed that we were that. He said, I've never realized, you know, I've never worked with people so dedicated. We didn't feel dedicated. We were just doing it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just when you... The... Go on. No, I, no, no, just after you. Sorry. Well, I just remember talking about the work ethic was uh, when we signed to EMI, I remember we did a show one of our first shows at the Starlight Roller Disco in Shepherd's Bush. And uh, just before or just after, we went to a pub with Jamie Reed. You know, Jamie Reed was the artist that did the whole pistols. Oh, yes. Uh, the, queen, the queen with the, the safety, safety pin. Yes. And he was, you know, around and always a good, interesting guy to hang around with. And we just signed the deal with. Of EMI, it wasn't for a lot of money, and we're like thinking, Oh, shit, I thought we'd get a bit more than that. We were very short of money all the time. <laughs> and, um, uh, I remember Jamie going, Oh, it's, it's a good deal, you know. We roll up and he's like, It's not a bad deal, Lou, you know, it's not about it. And, and then, um, but you've got to write, Malcolm, you've got to write another six to eight songs. And, in six weeks, you've got to be ready to record. In six weeks, so what if we don't? What if we don't do it then, Mel? Then you're through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you better get on it, boy. So anyway, so me and Matthew, we'd got a flat in East End. Malcolm had wrangled a flat that me and Matthew and his girlfriend had shared, that we shared, and we we just never went out. For those six weeks, we just stayed in. Malcolm would come around with a big pile of records from jazz stuff, all kinds of stuff, and we'd just listen to them on a dance set and just go through and try and come up with songs. Blimey, that's the. We help. worked like ninjas, and people would come round, you know, so oh, we're all going out to this fun fair, or we're all going out to the club tonight, blah, blah, blah. And we, me and Math just knew we couldn't go. And it felt weird, you know, we were sequestrated. <laughs> the questered. Absolutely. This questered into the and um we didn't go out. We just studied these records and tried to formulate, you know, we we worked out um Falls Rush in. Uh we came up with uh Sexy Eiffel Towers, that song. Um a bunch of songs. And we, we kind of had them ready. Baby on Mars, we come up with in the studio. I mean, it was like one o'clock in the morning in Abbey Road, and I'm sitting on the stool half asleep. We just, Matthew did this riff. We knocked that song out and wrote it in, I don't know, half an hour. And um, that was the only time that was like that fast. Most of the time, it spent a lot of time sitting around with guitars, trying stuff out. And we had two tape recorders, you know, real basic. We'd play one. Then record another part on top of that one, you know, really rough sounds, but enough to get the idea down. Yes, absolutely. And then so that's followed, how we do it. 
Yeah, the following year you did this EP, The Last of the Mohicans, didn't you, with your another kind of hit hit single. I know that was a cover. I mean, what 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 was the kind of atmosphere like at the band at the at that time? You know, and you didn't because you you didn't kind of come out with another album, did you? But you did oh, some. EP. We did. We did a we did an album after that called uh, When the Going Gets Tough. Eighty three. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, but the the, the the we carried on recording. We we weren't really sort of recording for an album. We just had a song and we'd go in and record it. And um, so while we were on tour, Malcolm put that together. Last of the Mohicans. I didn't even like the title because it. I don't know. It just seemed silly. But he, that he did that sometimes. He just would put a title on something and put it out as us, even though we were, you know, he did a lot creatively, but we would take, we we also did the bulk of the work, you know. He came up with lyrical ideas, but we would finish them off and um, add all our stuff to it. Yes. We, like I said, we worked hard. And um, the atmosphere in the band was uh, still, this is when George came along, you know, sort of 82, I think. Uh, 83 and um, and we were touring America and doing those tours with we've done those tours in America and um, it was good we knew we were getting somewhere but but like people say you're, you're in a bubble and you've got your nose to the grindstone and you're getting a bit of money but not a lot and um, and you're just working you know you're, you're playing shows and you're going in studios and recording it and um, so we were just working, you know, we just keep keep tra- traveling on, you know. Yes, because it's interesting because I, I mean, you know, having done this show for such a long time, I mean, most bands do have that five year narrative. I don't know for my love of the Smiths who came along in 82, 83, they have that right. five years, you know, you have yeah. the, you know, 12 month honeymoon, you get the single, John Peel plays it. I mean, yeah. this is very 80s, isn't it? You get the John Peel session, you get that first album, things are going well, you do the transit band tour around the country, a bit of Europe, possibly, possibly America, that kind of yeah. second, third album. And everyone, you know, it's like no one's come up for air. It's just like, God, we, you know, it's just yeah. like absolutely getting Gaga more. You know, it's like something from Apocalypse Now, isn't it, going down the river and you're just yeah. a bit odd. And um, yes, I can, you know, that tense intensity, but you can't, have a break, can you? Though everyone says, oh, it would have been good if we'd had a break, but you know the band would have still not come together again, really, isn't it? It's like no well, one's... yeah, that was that's that's very true, and um, we had that sense that we just had to keep going, like a shark, you know, I don't, no one knows if it's actually true, if a shark doesn't drown if it stops swimming, but um, that was the kind of feeling, that we had to be relentless, and we were. We did take breaks, but not that long, you know, a week, two. And that was our downfall, you know, going all the way to that arc that you described, which is a common one. Um, the uh, uh, All the touring and all the travelling had really taken a toll on me and, and especially Matthew. Matthew had got uh, diabetes and didn't know it, and I had... Uh, I was sick, or I thought we'd, you know, uh, caught a disease with a little name. <laughs> right. Because uh, we were, you know, a bit promiscuous, I would say, but we were careful. So 
But we didn't know. It was early days. and We were just sick. Matthew was a lot sicker than me. He'd lost a lot of weight. He had this enormous thirst. And it was because we didn't, we had this kind of British red coat pride, as the Americans say, or, the, you know, regimental pride. You don't, you do not slack. You keep going. You know, you just don't fuck around. We're young men. We're young people. Annabella was even younger than us. And we just, you just keep going. But it did take a toll on our health really badly with Matthew. And, and um, towards the end, uh, we took a break of about two weeks between one 50-day tour and the next. And Matthew went off to the Caribbean, St. Lucia, with his girlfriend. And I went off to Palm Springs. Excellent. And I was already ill. And I didn't know what was going on. I just couldn't move. I was just feeling terrible. It was just the worst feeling. So I just laid in this best western in Palm Springs and um, trying to recuperate, get ready for the tour. I just didn't get any better. It just felt terrible. My girlfriend came out. I was just laying in bed, went to the hospital. They didn't know what was wrong with me. So we started this tour, and I think it was the first show well, I met Matthew, you know, he was in the lobby of the hotel and he had a big abscess on his cheek. You know, I'm kind of shuffling around. I looked at him and I went, Math. And he went, Lee, I know. He said, I thought you'd be all tanned and healthy. And he said, no, I'm even worse. He had a golf ball size abscess on his face. And, um, but we had to do the show. And the people around us at that time, I don't think they cared about us enough. They didn't care about our welfare. We yeah. thought they were fun people to hang out with. I'm not mentioning any names, but looking back on it, they really, most, it, I tell you, we'd parted ways with Malcolm at that point, but I know if Malcolm was there, he, and he saw Matthew like that, he said, we're cancelling the tour. This guy needs to go to see a doctor and we need to stop, take a break, you know, and I'm shuffling around, not knowing what the fuck's wrong with me. And, um, so we did the show like the next night in a, it was like a zoo. It was New York, some New York state zoo or something. It was concrete, like a concrete amphitheater thing. And it was packed. It was a, played a good show. We just finished the set. And Matthew went to walk off the stage and he didn't realize it. He couldn't see that well. And he, he fell off, like fell, I don't know, 10, 12 feet right onto concrete. And he, Fractured his arm really badly, you know, because he had his guitar in crash. It's horrible. And we still did an encore. He played Fools Rush in with a fractured arm, but he didn't realize it because it had, you know, he didn't, couldn't feel it yet. But then overnight and over the next morning, we traveled to Florida. And at that point, his arm had swollen up to like the size of his leg and finally got into a hospital. and and he said, he mentioned, you know, actually, I've been feeling really weird. I tested his blood. Turns out, you know, he had diabetes and he was going blind. Oh, you know, cool. a few more weeks, he couldn't see the end of the stage. He was going blind and he was going to die in like three weeks if he didn't get stabilized. Yes. So, you know, it turns out we had no insurance. All our money disappeared. Uh, there was a lot of terrible things. And we just ended overnight. We didn't fade away. It was just like that. Well, Matthew had to stay in hospital for weeks. Tour was cancelled. 
I went back to England. I went to the doctor and he sent me to hospital. I spent a week in hospital. And Matthew, so me and Matthew are both in hospitals, him in Florida and and me in London. And uh, so that relentlessness went against us. Yes. And, um, it, 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 and we thought uh, that our youth would, would protect us from that, but it didn't. It didn't. And, um, uh, I, it turns out I had uh, mononucleosis, or they call it mono here, called it glandular fever. Oh, yes. The old, you know, I had some old professor, he was, a, it was in Bart's, so I had all these, te- you know, these medical students gathered around me, poking me and stuff, giving me blood tests and all this, that, and yeah, they tested me for AIDS, leukemia, you know, all the bad things. Turns out, you know, I was fine that way, but they said, oh, I had the Epstein Bar virus or something like that. And they said, you know, you've just been running yourself ragged too much, not eating properly, not sleeping properly. And, you know, I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink a lot. You know, I I wasn't any, I thought I wasn't doing anything that bad. But but I was. And so was Matthew. Even worse. And they're not sure what causes that type 1 diabetes could be viral. Affects, you know, he'd obviously caught something that damaged his body. And gave him diabetes, and he had to, you know, be injected with insulin and stabilized. And mm-hmm. was told, you know, if you didn't, if you just carried on, it would have killed you. So it, it just kind of ended the bag overnight. Yes. It stopped. And I took about a year to get better. Matthew never really got better, you know, to keep putting insulin into him for, for the rest of his life. Was that a big moment with um, Malcolm leaving the band? Was that, you know, was that something kind that... Kind of. It was... Um, uh, it'd become a bit disillusioned, it, you know, because we were sort of flying off on our own, literally going off the tours in America. Yes. Found our feet. And we weren't so intimidated by him anymore. And we knew what we were doing a, a lot more. And we didn't need him so much. And the, the crunch came was when Go On The Country was being posited as a single. And uh, I don't know if you know, it was a technical thing where the chorus come late. It's my idea to have the big chorus at the end. But the A&R man at RCA said, you know what? This would work a lot better if you just got that chorus and brought it in after the first verse. I said, well, that makes sense. But we didn't know enough to do that in the first place. So me and the A and R guy went to a studio, the studio where we recorded it, and just did a test edit with tape, like we did back in time. Just got the chorus, <laughs> clipped it in, and played it back, and wow, it did work. So that became the single. Some people don't notice the album version doesn't have that, but the single version has the chorus coming in early. Yeah, and it did work. It was a lot more radio friendly. Because you had that hook coming in um, within the first minute, which is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but Malcolm didn't like that, and he said to me, "How could you do that? You know, you're messing with your art. How could you compromise?" I said, "But it improved it. It improved the art. He's just bringing in the the hook earlier." Yes, and um, he just felt that I betrayed him a little bit by going. I didn't go beyond his back. I just went 
you know, really quickly, uh, I popped into the record company to get some David Bowie records, you know, because they were on RCA. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the A&R says, hey, yeah, I've got an idea, you know, just said, will you come in and, you know, we'll talk to you about something. Okay, so that's what he said to me about this. And we went that afternoon, went to the studio and, and did the test earlier. I went, wow, that works. You're right. Yeah. And this was an A&R man that, that knew his music, you know, knew about stuff. Yes. Bang on the button. And I went to play it to Malcolm and he, he was kind of, not angry, but he was kind of like, he wasn't happy about it. He felt that he was losing his influence with us a bit. And that's when he started to drift off and lose interest, as yeah. well as us doing tours in America. You know, he wasn't with us every day. Before he was with us every day. And in the end, it was me. I called him, collect call from Liverpool Street Station. <laughs> and uh, when he was in New York. Uh, working on uh, Duck Rock, with, yes. with which was a great album, and he wanted it. What his thing was, you know, we had this big discussion and argument, and he's in the hotel room with Trevor Horn in there and stuff. And, you know, I wanted to get Trevor Horn to produce us, and he'd already talked about. Um, I don't know if you know what a Fairlight is, the, the, what the first sampler, right? Yes, of, but it was you know it cost forty thousand pounds, which is like the cost of a house back then. And it wasn't, it was a big computer device with a you know, green and black screen and you draw on waveforms. And me being a bit of a science geek, I loved that shit. And Malcolm, had, about eight, six months earlier, they come around my house and we were writing lyrics or something. He says, oh, I've just been to Robin Scott's, you know, the guy that did M, pop music. Yeah. He said, he's got this machine. He says, and you can put music in it and you can trigger it, you know, on the keyboard. He said, you'd love it, Lee. You should come around and have a look at it and see if you can use it in the band. I'm like, oh, that sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. But never got round to it somehow. But I always thought, well, that would be a cool thing. And I thought, well, maybe we should go to Africa and get the beats because I knew that the guy from Nick Fleet, Nick Fleet would have done that. That's right, yeah. And so did um, Ginger Baker. You know, total just <laughs> real hardcore cultural appropriation but <laughs> we didn't know any better back then and you know it seemed like a good idea i said we could we should do that now and we put it all into this fairlight thing you know we'd sample it and trigger it and really bring this whole afro cultural thing together and he says that's brilliant Lee. we should do that so then he turns out he did it without us <laughs> where he wanted to be the artist he says i'm fed up being the artist via you look i said well malcolm we, we, we're pretty you know you didn't do everything we did a lot too and um, we were talking really bitterly. We'd never really talked like that before. We got on pretty well. So this was, you know, in the early evening, and I'm in the in the the lobby of Liverpool Street Station on a on a payphone talking to him on this. And he's like, ah. I said, "Man, oh, for fuck's sake, you know." He says, "So now you're doing that thing with the Fairlight, going around Africa, getting the beats, and then putting them in that machine." He says, "Yeah." Yeah, and it's going to be great. Better than fucking Bow <laughs> <laughs> And it was a great album. And he did it way before Paul Simon did the same thing, a little bit after him, you know, and got the credit for it. Well, Malcolm did it before him. Yes, absolutely. He got all those great musicians and uh, all that, you know, the double dutch and, and great stuff. Yes, know. it was good. Years later, I, I don't know if you know this, but I worked with Malcolm years later as his producer. No, I, I did. I worked on the Paris album. 
Right. Blimey. I worked with Malcolm. I did. I was producing and I was working with a band called Soho. I did that song, Hippie Chick. Oh, yes. I remember that song. Where we sampled How Soon Is Now. <laughs> <laughs> and we called up Johnny Marr on the phone to ask if it was cool. And he, he liked the idea. So, you know, we didn't just do it willy-nilly. Yes, and they, absolutely. you know, had to clear it with the publishing company. Anyway, so I was producing and getting a little bit of success here and there. Malcolm heard about it, and he heard about it via Marco. Because right. I produced, I produced Adam Ant. I did those songs, Persuasion, and and all that stuff. And Marco phrased me up to Malcolm, and um, and it was good working with Adam and Marco again. And mm -hmm. um, I didn't work with Marco, but I worked with Adam, obviously. But they were, Adam was on a roll, I thought. And um, anyway, I'm going all over the place with this sock, the story. But yes. But anyway, so I worked with Malcolm years later and I, I worked with him for like four years doing commercials and producing the Paris album in Paris and all that stuff. And so he would tell me all the stories that he, you know, you know, how he did um, all those other albums, especially that one. Yes, because because I suddenly realised I'd seen you in your other band, the Chiefs of Relief, supporting Big Audio Dynamite at the UEA Norwich. That wasn't me though. I don't. Me and David left by then. Ah, Dave left. Right. So yeah. you had a brief moment, and you in the Chiefs yeah. of Relief. Right. For about, I was still ill. Matthew had sort of started to stabilise his condition with his insulin, and I was still a little dazed, still fucked up. The doctor said to me, you're going to be okay, but it's going to take a year. Right. So we signed, we started off without it, and I said to him, why, why are we starting a new band? And I thought, well, the last band was pretty good, the next one will be good. But it, it wasn't as good, you know. I wasn't writing any songs. I was, I was tired all the time. I couldn't contribute, and uh, but I was happy to be with my mates, you know, in a band. Yes, absolutely. Thought, they were happy to have me there, and, uh, and Matthew was like the lead singer, and was writing the songs, and which I was fine with at the time. I thought, well, I, I just can't do fuck all right now. I can play the bass, I can do that, but you know, I, my energy, I was still recovering. You know, I don't know if I had yuppie flu or post-viral <laughs> syndrome or. It's that's almost, what the doctors call it. Kind of almost slips into ME as well, doesn't it? If you're not careful. Well, yes, yeah, what I started calling it. I started going to an ME clinic because it would come back now and then. But yes. my girlfriend's grandfather was a doctor, and I told him about it. I, I had a, it came back, it flared up a few years later. He said, you know, we, we were taught about this in medical school. You know, you can get a viral attack and it comes back, and you get this tiredness and feeling so it's nothing new so you know he, he, he was 80 years old he, he was uh you know he did his medical degree decades earlier so i was taught about this whenever it was four years away yes <laughs> so you know it's just something that's become fashionable but i said i it's not fashionable with me i can feel it anyway so mm -hmm. I started to get my strength back and started to realise that, you know, this wasn't Bow Wow, Chiefs of Relief. It was different. It was Matthew's thing, fair enough. It wasn't, I didn't think it was my thing. 
Dave didn't think it was his, so we left. Yes, and then you, you did quite a lot of production work and other bits and pieces, but then in sort of 97, you reformed Bow Wow Wow again. That's right. <laughs> was that a big decision? Did you just feel really? like... I was just... fed up with working in studios. You know, I'd done it a lot at that point. It was a lot of hard work. And uh, I spent years with Malcolm. I was kind of fed up with that. <laughs> and um, uh, I just split up with my girlfriend. And uh, and I had a studio. And then Steve Dagger, Spandau Ballet's manager, who I'd known through Spandau and Gary Kemp. And I'd become friends with Gary. And, and I approved his album too. He had an idea to do tour of america with a bunch of bands from the 80s which now everyone's doing yes. <laughs> but he had the original idea so he got me on board early on um he was going to try and get spandau but then they they didn't get on with uh i don't know they had a dispute with tony the singer so yes. that that wasn't going to fly then we spoke to i spoke to glenn you know from heaven to see if he was he was interested and then I went to see Adam and, and uh, I went to see Adam and Marco and see if they'd be interested. Then we put feelers out to Duran Duran. And, you know, me and Steve Dagger were trying to executively produce this this tour, which would be, I thought, was a great idea. It was because everyone's copied it since. <laughs> but it did, you know, but we had an agent in America helping us, but he, apparently he fucked up and. So I was left, I got in contact with Annabella and we'd stayed friends over the years, kind of just briefly here and there. We'd done a few little projects and she'd done quite well. She got signed, and but nothing came of it. And her music thing had sort of died off. And I said, well, look, you know, we might be able to do this tour and make a little bit of money. It might be fun. I asked Dave to do it. He didn't want to do it. So he helped me find a drummer. We found a drummer and I found a guitar player. And um, so off we went, and basically all the other bands had dropped out. This multi-band thing didn't work out, but I was left. I had a I had a studio, and I'd given up the lease on the on the recording studio, and I I would sold half my. I really committed. I told everyone I was doing this. So I thought, what the hell? I'm just going to go for it. So we did. We did that tour and ended up staying in America, and I've been here pretty much ever since. Blimey, that is fantastic. So so you sort of, because I know I've spoke to quite a few English musicians who have sort of relocated. There's a guy from the Mighty Lemon Drops, David Newton, who's set up a sort of studio in his garage, and Chris Connolly, who was in various bands in the UK and then in various kind of hardcore bands in America. So what's it like sort of relocating? It Was it... Is it because of well, nice? Difficult. Well, nice because, you know, the weather was nice. I was living in L.A. Uh, Annabella stayed there too. And we kept the band going, but she went off to do solo things. But I was happy there. I met my wife there. You know, we got married a little bit after. Uh, she was English too. So, you know, I, I was changing my life and I went through the whole immigration process. And uh, I liked it. It seemed easier. The weather was a lot nicer. <laughs> yes. And it seemed uh, the perfect time. And then, you know, I, I thought, uh, looking back on it, I did leave all the, 
I had a lot of opportunities that I could have taken up with producing and stuff like that. I just left that behind. I was fed up with working in studios. And, um, and I started doing commercials out here. I did quite well at it. And you got a lot more money here. Yes. And, did, you, um, did you produce people like Morrissey in the end? Did I, you... did. I what, did. What album was that? That was uh, You Are the Quarry. You are the quarry. Oh my god, that was his big comeback one, wasn't it? I, well, it's a little contentious because I've got to be careful what I say. Because I was friends with his guitar player, Alan White. And I also knew Boz because he was in the Polecats. Yes. And I knew Tim from the Polecats. You know, we've been friends for years. So and I knew Buzz quite well. And and um I even used Boz on the commercials I was doing with Malcolm. First one I did with Malcolm, I got Boz in. Because I knew he was, you know, good on guitar. And uh so um yeah, so I'd, I'd kind of been in, in L.A. for a year or two. And I still had my chops as a producer, but, you know, I did most of it at home or I'd go to studios that were sort of designed around um, doing commercials rather than records. And uh, Alan, I, he was a, a big songwriter with, with Morrissey, did a lot of the music. Very talented guy. Mm. Very, you know, great guitar player, very, you know, he could listen to a kind of a savant, you know. And um, we got on really well. And he says, I've done these songs, and he did them on Cubase on his little iMac. And uh, and, and Tim Polcat had helped him a little bit too. So it was still in that kind of bedroom in Cubase kind of way. He says, I want to I wanna make him sound a lot better. So, so, so I... I said, I'd help you. You know, so I helped him. I put grooves on it and added stuff. And, and then I converted it all to Pro Tools. I hired a Pro Tools setup. You know, I knew this stuff. I'd done it uh, at a high level, you know, Abbey Road and all that. So I knew my shit. So I converted it from Pro Tool, from Cubase, which is kind of tinny sounding, not necessarily because of the software, but because he'd had it on all these little dinky things and, it wasn't a professional format at the time, even though mm. I had made records use Cubase. It's not against that. It's just that, uh, just in general, I had to, I wanted to upgrade it to that pro level, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity, and then um, it just sort of mushroomed out of there. Before I know it, and uh, Alan's like, well, why don't you produce this? Why don't you be the producer and help us do this? I said, well, sure. So I ended up. Converting everything, adding everything. I got him a drummer that I knew that would fit in like a glove. It was, I can't remember his name now. He, he was perfect in terms of his style. English guy that had moved to America when he was younger. He had that great sort of loping style, a bit like Pete Thomas. Yes. And he was a bit like that. And uh, great guy, very intelligent. And I thought that drummer would work great on this, you know, instead of all these loops and stuff. But we added loops. And we upgraded the sound, and I'd look, and he had a little bit of synth in there. I thought, well, you know, this is right on my alley. I can do this. So I, I flew with it, and then we went into Cherokee Studios in Hollywood, just up the road from me. And um, you know, I met Morrissey, and he was up for it, and he was a little bit cynical of me because I'm I'm like a, a Cockney boy from London, you know. <laughs> 
and uh, he was a little bit dubious about me, but we we hung out at the Cat and Fiddle, and, and he got I got introduced into the drama, and we all got on really well. So you know, I ended up uh, setting up the the session at Cherokee, and uh, he had an assistant, and you know, of course, there was no meat allowed in the building while he was there, and I set up the we set up me and his assistant set up the uh, recording room for his vocals, uh, like the like the front room of uh, um, Coronation Street. Yes. <laughs> so he felt a little, little lampstand, a carpet, and that's you know, made it. It was kind of not the full deal, but it, it looked very Coronation Streety. So I did a bit of a number. He tried to use my experience, and then when he does his vocals, he doesn't want anyone else in there. Just me, him, and the engineer. The engineer doesn't really know anything about Morrissey or Smiths or anything. He's just a good guy, but just a technical guy. And then, you know, the first song we did was Irish Blood, English Heart. Mm. And then I heard him sing. I thought, oh, my God. You know, now I get it. So I was a little bit sceptical about him, too, because, you know, I had that whole Steve Wright in the afternoon impression of, you know, <laughs> that, that guy used to make impressions <laughs> of him. Little bit unkind. Anyway, I didn't come from that era. The closest I'd got was calling Johnny Marr about the how soon is now sample from yes. But then I got his voice and his artistry and his lyrics, you know, and I heard I thought, fucking hell. Yeah, this this is good. So it took me to another level with him. And I um I produced those demos. And um it wasn't a sh- you know it wasn't a shoe in as they say in America, but uh, Alan was like, you know, Moz, like, Lee's got to produce the album. He's got to come to Hook End. I already worked at Hook End, which is that residential studio in London, in, in England. Yeah, and um, it was uh, Trevor Horn's place. One of his at that time, you know, the guy that produced Malcolm. Anyway, so. I thought that was going to happen. I, I, I tried, it was difficult because his voice is so full. It was hard to get his voice in the right level. Mm-hmm. And I had like no time. I had to mix like five tracks by hand in like two hours. It was the only time and budget we had. So, and then they got another producer. You know, it was it was more of a business decision. I won't mention any names. But, uh, the final version, especially of that song, was pretty much identical to the one I'd done. <laughs> and, and they said they'd re-recorded it all, but I don't think he had. I spoke to the drummer that actually went with him to England to record it, and he told me they didn't re-record a lot of the stuff. You know, and I remember telling him, you know, I went through every drum track, you know, symbol here, symbol there. You know, I was very on point. I did a good job. And then, you know, he blew me off. And the guy that, that did it just basically used all the files I'd put together. On. Yeah, he must have re-recorded some of it. Um, but he, the thing about producing is number one rule is don't fuck it up, especially if you're working with a good a major artist. Yes. You know, that knows what they're doing. They're going to do it good anyway. All you got to do is basically translate their art. But I added a bit more to it, you know. I think I did, and it did bring him back. 
But then yeah, again, it was, it was his artistry, not mine. But I, 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 I did my part in it, my small part, and he he blew me off and basically just used the work I'd done. And um, but anyway, it, it it's not it didn't really bother me that much. I just thought, well, what, what the fuck? At least I I know I did it, and he gave me a thank you on the album. <laughs> so you know there was no bad blood or anything i just thought well i, I could have i could have had that job i would have done a good job at it yeah i would have actually taken it to another level you know i would have taken it beyond those demos i would have taken it i don't know probably i wouldn't have fucked it up at least i don't think so no. so like i said there was no bad blood um i would have liked to have done that job but i didn't get it i gave it to someone else and that was the end of that it's a bit of a tough <laughs> one, isn't it? Yes, I know. It's a bit tricky, though. I mean, with, with the... Yeah, it happens. It, it, it must be really hard, actually. I don't think I could cope, really. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, too sensitive. Was, I was... Yeah, I know, but I, I'd, I'd... You know, I've worked with Malcolm for years. I'd work with all kinds of people that are a bit rough and ready. So I was, I'm used to the, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was okay anyway. I was doing commercials and making a lot more money. Doing <laughs> true. That. I mean, with, with, you know, with all the work you do, you know, juggling the commercial stuff and your production or producing stuff, and then with Bow Wow Wow, do you, I mean, is that very much back and part of your life, you know, because you've been sort of having a few reforms and then seems to drop and then you reform again. But is it now kind of a permanent fixture? Yes, it, it is. And I do think about that, debate that amongst myself. And, <laughs> and uh, it kind of is. I enjoy it, though. I was talking to Dave Barb a little while ago on the phone. And I said, look, you know, I just really enjoy it. Because for years, he's like, why why you keep doing that, Leeds? Just do something else. I said, well, I've done other things. done lots of other things. And Dave's done a lot of other things. But, it, you know, I really love playing those bass lines and, and singing those songs. And, and I thought, well, why not? I'm getting older now. Why, I have the opportunity. People still want to hear it. Why not? Yes, absolutely. And everyone, everyone's sort of doing it. I think actually interesting, having done this show for a long time, I notice there's a sort of period of time that that elapses. And it's like about 25 to 30, 35 years. And then suddenly, people reevaluate things and start to sort of really appreciate them even more thinking, actually, this is really good. So I think with a lot of bands, they've sort of realized, A, they enjoy doing it and B, I mean, people think, actually, the music's better than I remember. And I don't think it's just about nostalgia. I think it's like, actually, this is actually really good. I'd slightly, sometimes there's bands you slightly dismissed at the first time, and then you hear them again, you think, wow, that's really impressive. So it is interesting, you know, 40, 40 years later. What's the lineup of your band now, the the, the current lineup? Um, well, it changes because, you know, I have to use different musicians because they get busy. All the good ones are are busy in in a, you know in Amer in this part of America we're everywhere and um so it, it it is in flux but i have you know a bunch of guys that i generally rely on uh i don't want to say any particular names because it changes right and you know annabella's not singing in the band anymore you know, I don't know if you're you're aware of that. Yeah, because she's. I mean, I'm, I'm, she left what... about ten years ago, and now she's playing as Bow. She she left and started playing as Annabelle Lewin, and then um, and now I think 
it was more the promoters rather than her convincing her to use the name. And it's difficult. You know, I can't go into legally no. and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I always wish Arabella the best of luck. I never say anything bad about her. Because that's, you know, not cool or gentlemanly. <laughs> no. I know that uh, because I've done a few interviews with bands like the Rubettes or right. or um, Barkley James Harvest. And there's like quite a few versions. I think there's three or four versions of the Rubettes, which is quite boggling. <laughs> and two versions of... Well, this um... is how it happens. You know, uh, basically, you know, I I was financially responsible for the band. And then when she left, I had to take care of things. And so and I just carried on. I had to get another singer because I would be sued if I didn't. So that's how that happened. I, I didn't plan on using another singer. Or it wasn't like a plot. She just left and it got fed up. And, and then... um. Like I say, I had no choice but to find another singer to fulfil my contractual obligations. And it worked. People didn't seem to mind, so I carried on. So was, that was basically it. That's, that's how it happened. Yes. And I remember the suite having different versions of that. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of sad. But look, but that is now it's happened to us. And you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it wasn't through design. And uh, or it just happened. You, you know what can you do if someone wants to leave? They leave. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, have you fixed on a, a sort of because obviously the singer is quite critical, really. Have you now yeah. sort of got quite a um, a regular member who's who's kind of the yes, vocalist? I think so. Yeah, her name's Madeline Feller, who I was speaking to just now, and um, yeah, she's really good. She's she's great. She's very easy to get along with and. She sings really well, and she has a jazz background. She's a little trooper, yeah. You know, and she's a good all-round um, person to have around in the band, and you know, and perform. She looks great, and she performs really well. But is it the case with an end? Because I know you played some dates last year. Have you got sort of dates and projects lined up for twenty twenty three? Yes, in fact, we're. We should be. We're coming to Europe in August, and uh, we've got a lot of other shows in America too. And um, yeah, already we have a bunch. And, yes. and uh, so right up past August already. And um, we'll see what we're doing. The W Festival in August, on August twenty seventh in in Ostend in Belgium. I saw uh, your post on that. So yeah, um, we're getting Dave. Dave is going to play on us on that one, and maybe a few others. But he won't commit to a tour, which is fair enough. But we'll see how it goes. We haven't booked any more dates in there, minute, but we hope to. Yes, I know. Do you ever sort of get that itch to sort of record new material? Of course, yeah, we do. I do, but it's it was hard. It was hard coming up and recreating that sense of what we had back then and um but i can do it you know it's i've written a lot of stuff over the years mainly for commercials and film yes. music and all that sort of stuff and um i enjoy it. i've written two or three songs already and uh they are in the barrel idiom and i feel that i have the the keys to that idiom, thematic style, and and so does Dave, like he does on the drums. 
I can get people to play like him, but they're not Dave Barb. And and uh and I can write songs pretty close to what I remember the the style of that was. Yeah, so we will be over the next excellent few, few months. We'll see. Not many, just two or three. And does I mean I'm always curious, but obviously being, you know, from this country, I mean I'll, do you because obviously you toured a bit of America? Do do Americans do you still have a following in, in America? Actually, you played there last summer, didn't you? So that's a stupid question. Yeah, we we, we do have a following, not huge, but enough people to appreciate us. Yeah, yeah. Because sure. um, I just because I wondered if you ever sort of do things like Vegas and find that all these kind of fans come out of the woodwork and go, "My God, yes, I remember Bow Wow." I and, do, I do. That's true. It's exactly what happens. But usually we play with a lot of other bands or one or two. We've, we've done tours with the Motels, um, Missing Persons, Berlin, you know, all those 80s bands. Wang Chung, played with them a few times. Classic. And, yeah, it's fun. I, I, I really enjoy doing it. I think probably enjoy it too much, people would say. <laughs> That's why I'm still doing it at my advanced age. But anyway... Um, yes. And I still enjoy playing the bass, and I still enjoy playing those stupid bass lines that were way too much. You know, <laughs> I didn't know any better from what when I was a you know a kid, pretty much a teenager. Because the band had such kind of on one level commercial success, but then obviously probably the ups and downs. Did you ever sort of get that kind of level of admin sorted out? Because that's, that's one thing that I've often. But, you know, a lot of people speak about it. it's like, you know, things about ownership of music and publishing and then sort of having to pay, you know, the tax bill. I, I, no. I don't want to say too much about it, but it was, yes, it is difficult because you're not, I was a little bit minded like that because, you know, I went to a good school. I told you about all that stuff. So I knew a little bit. I, I could understand legalese a little bit too. Uh, but, you know, and, and Matthew and Dave were quite bright people. And uh, so, yeah, we could understand, but we were too busy. Uh, we were worn out a lot of the time. We were traveling. So a lot of it got, you know, put to one side. Yes. But over time, we figured out a lot of stuff. That's all yeah. I'll say. Yeah, because yeah, well, a lot of bands I've spoke to have just said, you know, they're, they've, they're sort of sorting out their archives and, and sort of finding the master tapes and then sort of going to, you know, do something just for their own peace of mind more than anything else. But obviously yeah. sometimes. For sure, that, I've, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. And that kind of made a lot of people, especially in lockdown, felt really like, oh, yes, actually that feels a lot better now that we've tidied up that kind of project. And I feel... I don't know. Yeah, I just wondered because obviously you you were playing on a bigger circuit than or bigger audiences and bigger sales than a lot of indie bands from the eighties. So yes. Yeah, I mean we were sort of medium size where we did okay, but we never made you know the millions of dollars that that some bands made. But we we did okay, so I'm not complaining. But yeah, it, it was difficult over the decades to figure out a lot of that admin stuff. What we did. To, to quite a good extent. We had a lot of help. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's probably best I can't talk about a lot of don't, that No, stuff. I don't blame you. Don't, don't let's talk about that. That was the condition that we were told. So, yeah. But was and, it? Uh, yeah. 
but there's nothing that mysterious or, or, or skullduggerous or whatever. But it was, um, but yeah, basically, in answer to your question is yes, we, we did take the time and had help from lots of good people, and we did sort a lot of things out. No, oh, that's always a nice. I like those stories. Look, just, just, just if you could have whispered, whispered something to your sixteen-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you would have gone? Yes, probably that last question, really. But um, is there anything else? I think it would have been write more songs. I think if we'd have written more, and um, and don't give up. I mean, we we kind of just all sort of split up when you know we all got sick and. When we really didn't need to, you know? yeah. <laughs> and I spoke to Annabella about this, you know, because we started off about, and I didn't want to. I said, "Why are we not working with Annabella?" And they, the guys, didn't, you know, change their mind. Years later, I worked with Annabella, and you know, we got on well. And then, you know, she she left. <laughs> but um, yes, it was keeping going and writing, being more prolific. Because, you know, we would have more royalties and we would have more opportunities. Yes. And um, and we knew that back then, but we just didn't stick to it like we should have done. Did you, were you amazed? I don't know if you saw it, you know, the David Bowie film, Moon Age Daydream, which came out, which had done been done by that director, Morgan Brett. And, right. you know, it was a very impressionistic kind of sort of um, world of Bowie. I haven't seen it yet. But I know people that have, but I, I do want to see it, yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing, but I suppose what I often think, you know, having, you know, that sort of obsession with him, that, you know, just one one part of it is, like, in his 70s, he did one album a year, roughly, produced several wow. albums, toured several massive tours as well, relocated, you know, got married, you know, got married. He divorced. was prolific, you know, he, he worked. Oh, and, and, film, and films as well. Yeah, yeah, so I just thinking, you know, when you were, because obviously most people are exhausted after that five-year period, whereas I often yeah. think, how do some people then manage not to completely lose it and have an amazing drug addiction as well? So for yeah. Bowie, not you, but, um, no, you know. No, we, I but, but, it, but you're right. It's interesting that you have, that that perspective in terms of time and you can see and analyze those arcs and those periods and i've kind of had a notion about that but you've kind of uh delineated it more more, more clearly and um as i mentioned being prolific was something that malcolm Y said you know you have to do to so you have to be to succeed mm. so we tried our best but, but i think we spent too much time on the road concentrating on live shows which was good but we i think we were having too good a time you know we were having fun we were young men and young women and you know we were having fun and um we should have got down to our recording and writing songs we did at the end but we should have started earlier you know uh, we should have done more basically we should have been prolific in terms of writing songs and recording rather than working too hard on the road. It's basically trying to put your energies, which are limited. You don't realise it at the time, but they are limited. Even if you're in the you know, the flush of youth, we discovered to our cost that that's not going to save you. You, you can get sick just from yeah. like <laughs> I say I was not a party animal. I was having fun, but I was not staying up super late. I didn't do drugs. I wasn't drinking lots of alcohol. And I got sick as a dog. And Matthew got really sick. And he wasn't really 
he was a bit more party to me, but not like <laughs> crazy. So I don't know. It depends on your constitution and your decisions. And we were seduced by playing two minutes to get into the live thing. Yes. If we'd have been a bit smarter, we'd have stayed at home, written more songs, recorded more, maybe done a movie or two, you know, reinvented our, you know, look at an example like Bowie is just the ultimate because it's super smart and he and he had the constitution to have his drug habit and still be, you know, we it probably would have killed me if I did anything like that. You know, just, <laughs> it would have stunned me in. But I don't know if that makes anything any clearer. We we were, I suppose, after Malcolm, we lost our older, wiser person, our manager, to sort of say, look, guys, you're on the road too much. You need to come home and write more songs and record another album. Yes. And uh, focus that and maybe do, you know, the odd tour here and there. Not all the time. We continuously toured for the last couple of years. My God. And, um, that was our downfall. It, it took a, too much of a toll on us. And um, I think when you're at Bowie's stage two, we were pampered a little bit. You know, we had our road crew and all that stuff. And we, but he's those guys are super pampered. You know, they they have assistance to do everything. Mm. I don't know if that helps. You know, you've still got to get on that bus. You've still got to get on that plane. It still rattles your body around going at 500 miles an hour through the sky. You know, it's it does something. Yes, absolutely. Much. And then you sweat every night playing a show, you're going from cold, you know, you get off the stage, you go through, and it's snowing outside. We've done that. We play gigs where you have to go through the open air to get to the dressing room. You know, you've got steam coming off you. I think of all those instances which were not good for us. Anyway. I'm rattling on a bit. Yes, much, but... and because in, <laughs> in, in a way, you know, the band were perfect for the rest of the '80s, really, wasn't it? I think that's you know that's something that you probably think, God, we should have been doing it during that time with that other band and yes, other scene because actually, technically, you know, in terms of songwriting and technologically, in terms of all the, you know, the the new sound you know the dance music thing which i got into in the late 80s you know i was producing dance records yes and i was a techno geek you know i loved technology but i also knew back when we were recording that if we used too many keyboards it would date us you know if we used a dx7 i know everyone knows what a dx7 sounds like now what people like me know but it you can tell it comes from a certain few years of the 80s well, I, I do find that if anything with Trevor Horn production sound does sound really, yeah, it's he was good. an amazing producer, but his methodology was so exacting. And um, because I work with a lot of his engineers later on, you know, in the in the 90s, so I, you know, I did know what his methodology was, and um. And Malcolm worked with him, so when I worked with Malcolm, he would always talk about it. He he used very high end production methods, but but it did have that eighties sound a lot of the time. It did. If you listen to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which were about our fans, and the way that engineer Gary Langham sort of created that soundscape, I mean, it's fantastic sounding. Apart from the 
sometimes cheesy people sounds, but and Seal, you know, listen to the production. Oh yes, later on in the nineties, and um, anyway, I, I think we we would have developed somehow technically because uh, I was getting interested in it, and Matthew was interested in it too. Into, you know, to uh, enhancing our recordings. And, yeah. And take anyway, I think I'm done now. Talk <laughs> <laughs> way too much. Yes. Well, look. Thank you. Are you going to edit? Are you going to edit that down to like half an hour or an hour or something? Oh, <laughs> I might. Yes, I might. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I'll have a listen to it and have a good think because um, it is a great story. Actually, it's it's fascinating the the history of a band and a musician. It's always kind of fascinating. And I'm doing a book. I'm like I'm talking to a a writer who's writing it and you know I'm recording it, and writing it. So a lot of this stuff is a repeat of some of the stories I've told. Yes, well, it's interesting. Well, like I said, um, it's interesting that I, I saw your name in this Dorothy, Dorothy, I know I keep talking about it, Dorothy Max Pryor, who was, um, and I thought, I wonder if you're in it. So I just put, I put a search and it's like, oh, you are in it. Yes, you, you're sort of. Am I, uh, did they have a band called Max? Is that Max with, with because I know um, the bass player who was married to, um, what's her face? Uh, sorry, I'm fading a bit now. Coffee's wearing off. <laughs> <coughs> Jordan, married to Jordan. Ah, well, I, um, I can't remember that, but I do know from with Marco, you know, and they had a band called Max. I think even Math played on it for a minute. Yeah, I mean, they were re- for that five years. They were really into, you know, they were they were sort of very connected, and they were all part of Psychic TV, Rima Rima, Adam, the uh, the Monochrome set, all those kind of bands. And they, yeah, they were doing lots of art installation stuff, and they were sort of working with different people. There was a guy called Alex Ferguson who was in apparently. The psychic TV. So they were, yeah, it was quite an interesting bunch. But they were, you know, the title of her book is the the, the address and the house that she lived in. And so obviously there's this five years, lots of inter, you know, relationships going here, there, and everywhere. So, um, yes, yeah, we worked with a guitar player, me and Dave once, called Foz, not Boz, but Foz with an F. And he he was in, I don't know if he was in Fubbing Gristle or one of he was working with that that crew. Um, yeah, they were they were very arty and odd. Was it Genesis P Origin? Yeah, that that's it. Oh, was Foz who's just F O Z? By the way, that's it. Yeah, because it looks like she's. I just could put it into that her book because I've got the PDF and it's like I where I live with my husband Foz, but perhaps Dorothy. Oh, there you go. Yeah, probably <laughs> did meet her. There. Yeah, I think she was around. So, and he he worked with us for a few months, and then he he didn't want to. He wanted to do something else. And, yeah, uh, he was a nice guy, but creative. So that was a that was a, yeah that was the I I forgot all about him. I just remembered him. <laughs> oh, was his name James Foster? I can't remember his real name. We just knew him as Foz. Yeah, it is James Foster is his real name because I've just looked, and he was in a band called Dave. Devant and his spirit wife and various other and the monochrome set. So 
all there. Yeah, he was in that 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 scene, and that's how we came across him. And we, we worked with him for a little bit, but he, nothing came of it. He, 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 he didn't would. want to do it anymore. <laughs> anyway, look, I'll let you go. Thank you ever so much. God, I'm so pleased. This yeah, get me to talking. I can't stop once I've had like a few cups of coffee. I'm <laughs> sure I've annoyed the fuck out. Plenty of people. No, it's been brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, Lee. And I try not to say anything bad about anyone because I, mm-hmm. I think that's not cool. No, there was nothing. There was nothing bad, and and um, no, I don't like doing that. No, and also I'm always a bit careful with um if someone talks. Yeah, about the Morrissey it. stuff was the closest I got. That's... You can, you know, if you don't mind, just you know, make that maybe a little bit nicer if you because <laughs> you know <laughs> you I don't... have to be careful because he's got a lot of money and he's very litigious. Yeah, yeah, but um, he. But I didn't say anything. That's no, and and I have done oh, interviews with um, Alan White and various Johnny Bridgewater, who was in a band, uh, one of those psychobilly bands, and various and te- yeah. and various people from the Poltac Polecats as well. And it's kind that's of funny because I, you know, they they have a little bit of a Morrissey story, and it's always quite amusing because um, he got into that rockabilly sound when he did your Arsenal with Mick Ronson, didn't he? So um. Right. Harry Day, Bosbora, and various other people. So um That's right. And I met Nick Ronson at that time. A mutual friend. He he knew him and it was just before he passed away. Yes, ninety two. And I was like amazed. And I had my kid with me and he I had to go out of the room and he looked after my kid for like five minutes. And it, it such a nice man. And I thought, God, he's handling it. But he was already, you know, jaundiced. He had some kind of liberal Thing. Yep, liver cancer. And Morrissey wanted to get him to produce his band before he, you know, passed on. Yes. Anyway, but yes. I, I really liked Nick Ronson. He, he was a great guitar player. He's just put there's been a book on him recently as well. I read some excerpts. I didn't realize he was into string arrangements and all kinds of stuff on the Bowie. Yes. I mean, he's amazing. I think everyone realizes he should be credited really with more of the um, work than. He was, but you know, it's one of those yeah. things, isn't it? And, and a very nice man. I mean, Jesus, he was so polite and humble. I was like, God, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the room with. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> I, I was a bit starstruck when I met him. Well, he did produce Lou Reed's Transformer, didn't he? Which was quite amazing. So um, that's true. I forgot that. You know, I, I completely forgot that. But Mick Ronson to me, I was into Bowie, but I thought that sound, you know, the guitar parts and stuff, that that was the coolest shit, I thought. Yes. Yeah. I wasn't a guitar player, but I really liked that. He but, was his kind of what he said he referred to him as his Jeff Beck, didn't he, really? So yes, I guess he was he, he was a bit really. He was good. Yeah. Anyway, look, I'll let you go and I'll go to bed. Cheers, then. Thanks, Lee. Take care. You're very welcome. Cheers, Cheers. then. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Lee Gorman talking about um, his life in music with Bow Wow Wow. I do believe there is a website that you can go to and probably subscribe to to find out more information. But a massive thank you to Lee for giving me the time. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Thanks a lot. Take care. Stay safe.